When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and if I seem a little more tired this week than usual, please forgive me, but I have a good excuse. School has begun again for me at BYU, and, and it's been busy. I kept thinking through the summer, I'm like, how am I going to squeeze my job back into life when it's been so busy already just trying to keep up with the letters of Paul? Well, it's begun and I'm trying to get to know 280 students and, and learn their names and, and wrap my heart around them. That part's been easy. They're amazing. In fact, many of them are related to you. And so I wanted to thank you for sending them my way. This first week, many students came up and said, oh, my grandma said I had to take your class. So thank you, grandma. Or my dad watches your podcast. And thank you, dad, for sending your, your, your children my way. For all of you, it's, they're an amazing bunch. And I'm honored that you would trust me with them. I'll do my very best to make sure I return them to you with interest as we study the Book of Mormon together in class. For us here, we'll be sticking with the New Testament. And I hope it's been an amazing experience for you so far. Uh, having studied Romans and now First and Second Corinthians, those are the, the biggest of his letters. We'll get to Hebrews as, as well near, uh, near the end, and that's a long one and deep one as well. But we're now beginning a section of, of much shorter letters. Today is Galatians, and that's all we get is this week. Next week we'll be on to Ephesians and, and then picking up speed beyond that. But Galatians is an incredible letter. I love this one. As short as it might be, six chapters is all we've got. Uh, in some ways, we're already familiar with the context and the content because of our, our study of the book of Romans. Now, Galatians was written before Romans, and so in some ways, the letter to the Galatians is almost a dress rehearsal for Romans. Uh, it's, a, it's a mini Romans. And I say that because the context is similar. If you remember what we studied in the book of Romans, that there's Jews and Gentiles coming together into the Christian church, and, and how do you balance that? How do you accept the new without alienating the old? And, and what kinds of compromises are we going to make culturally? How much of Judaism do, does a Gentile need to pass through on the way to, to Christianity? How much of the law has been fulfilled? And how much has, is continuing on? Whether it's ceremonial law, including circumcision, that's a big issue, versus moral law and the commandments of God. And of course, those ones need to continue on. But as we saw when we studied Romans, that was a challenge. And Paul is trying to, to navigate a middle way and helping people find the Goldilocks zone here uh, and, and come to an understanding of what, the, what kind of gospel principles they really ought to be living. Similar things are taking place among the Galatian saints. And Paul is going to cut to the chase. There's a, a lot of the same doctrine as Paul, that Paul develops in the book of Romans as far as law versus grace and works versus faith and all of that. Paul is going to try to find the, the balancing act and the Goldilocks zone in that as well. He's trying to prove those contraries among the Galatians. But he doesn't develop it to the same length and depth as he does 
to, with the Romans. As I said, Galatians is written earlier, and so in some ways you can start to see Paul wrestle with these things doctrinally and theologically, and how do I make sense of this myself as a, as a former Jew who is now a, a full-blooded Christian, and, and how much of my Judaism do I take with me versus how much do I leave behind? So this is a personal issue for Paul, but it's also a pastoral issue. And as he's trying to help these Galatian saints navigate it, uh, it's going to prepare him to do an even more developed job uh, when he gets to the book of Romans later on. Now, Galatia itself, this is not a city. Rome was a, is a city. Corinth is a city. And so Paul has been writing these letters, or the letters we've studied, I should say, were to specific branches of the church. Okay, The Corinth first war, the, the, the Rome stake, whatever you want to call it. Galatia, on the other hand, is a region. So a picture, oh, I don't know, the, the New England Patriots or the Golden State Warriors, that it doesn't have the city in the title, it has the region instead. And Galatia is a region in Central Asia Minor. So modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's in the book of Acts when we studied, oh, chapter 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey, He's passing through southern Galatia as part of, that, uh, part of that journey. And there's a major issue there going on in terms of do Gentile converts have to be circumcised? Uh, this was the time period where Timothy, who was part Jew and part Greek, ends up deciding to be circumcised to appease the, the Jewish elements of the church. Uh, there's been all kinds of persecution against Paul. He's, he's stoned nearly to death during that, during that journey. And so... This has been a rough, a rough part of his mission, and the Galatian saints are going to be wrestling with same, the same kinds of issues of, is circumcision, is circumcision essential, for example? Uh, how, do we, how do we navigate these kinds of cultural issues? Uh, and Paul is going to write them this letter, after he's already been through that, that area, to try to see how things are going. He's heard some things uh, among the Galatian saints. He's responding to some of the things that he's heard. Similar to what we saw in Corinthians, where it's, okay, Chloe and her house wrote me a letter, informed me of what's going on there on the ground, and yeah, we've got some cleaning up to do. So here's a letter to address that. Galatians is a similar kind of letter. We're going to address the issue, and we're going to do it head on. Uh, in some ways, this is one of his most terse and straightforward letters. We're going to see one place later on this week where it's some of the strongest condemnation that Paul gives to anybody. Uh, he, it's, it's even, it even had to be watered down and softened up by the King James translators. We'll try to get back to the Greek to see just how angry or well, righteously indignant, better word, uh, Paul is over some of the things that are happening to, among the Galatian saints. But to set it up, and then we'll dive in, one of the things that's happening is you have been converted into the, into the kingdom of God. You have been baptized into Christ. And as Christians, there are certain parts of the old Jewish law that are no longer required of you to live. And yet, the Judaizers, as we've met in previous lessons, are these people that are, these Christians that are still trying to hold people to the Jewish side of the faith, the Jewish, the traditions of the fathers. And they just can't seem to let it go. And because circumcision was the, the token of the covenant uh, back in the days of Abraham, and they're, it's, they're having a hard time letting that go and seeing it replaced with a new token of the covenant, namely baptism. And so there's still this sense of, no, you've got to be circumcised. And, and Paul is pushing back against that. But certain people are, are being drawn back into that old tradition 
And Paul's big concern is, don't go back. Don't, you've been climbing upward. Don't slide back downward. You've been moving forward and please do your very best to ignore those that are trying to chain you back to old, old expectations that the Lord no longer has for you. In some ways, when I think of Galatians, I picture, I've actually asked my students this before, and it leads to an interesting conversation. I've asked, would you want to go back to the old home teaching, visiting teaching model? Or do you prefer ministry? And as they wrestle with that, one of the interesting things that they loved about the shift to ministering is that it was less prescriptive in terms of it's every month and you report and, and this is what you're supposed to teach. And it's the first presidency message from the ensign. And, and they said it just felt like a lot of box checking sometimes. And it's, it's the 31st and I haven't done my home teaching yet. So I better go, I better go wake up the family I've been assigned to. Uh, that kind of legalism was something that they were grateful to be, to be rid of. And yet, as I push the issue and ask them, so how's ministering going for you? Often they admit, and I often feel guilty of this myself, that ah, sometimes it's harder to know if I've done it right or done it sufficiently because I don't have that monthly, have I done anything this month? I don't have a box to check. And while it's sometimes frustrating just to be checking boxes, at least I know that if it's checked, then I did something. Does that make sense? Similar question. Uh, I've asked, how, did you th- how do you feel about the new youth and children program? Uh, do, what do, you th- do you miss, you, know, you young women, do you miss the old young women's program and the medallion and, and everything else where you have all of these requirements and expectations and it's all spelled out for you and you check those boxes and you, and you get your medallion? Uh, or you young men, what about the scouting program? Do you miss the, the beads and the patches and the, and the merit badges and everything else? And it's always a mixed reaction because on the one hand, they're grateful for greater freedom and autonomy and agency and choice. But on the other hand, sometimes there is this sense of, yeah, I've got all this freedom and I don't know what to do with it. I've been given such a long leash that I'm tripping up over it left and right. And I don't really know if I'm doing it right or even worse, I don't really know if I'm doing anything at all. Uh, I, I wonder sometimes, as these changes have been made, if church leaders on the general level are watching church members across the earth and wondering, uh, did, we, did we graduate them too early? We, we were raising the bar and giving higher expectations. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if people are living up to it. Are they, I'll put it this way, is there any kind of buyer's remorse when we're moving forward and, and raising the bar, but making the bar a little harder to see sometimes, where it's more self-directed and follow the Spirit and set your own goals and, and, and do all that you can as guided by the Holy Ghost? And it's like, oh, guided by the Holy Ghost? Can I be guided by a program instead? Isn't there some list I'm supposed to follow and a program to do and a box to check? Actually, now that I think of it, that there was some buyer's remorse even in the Protestant Reformation among Protestants that were so thrilled to be free, quote unquote, 
of, of Catholic works and, and requirements and expectations and so on. But as they, as they got past the initial euphoria of freedom in Christ, of sola gratia and, and sola fide, only grace, only faith, they, they started missing Catholicism. Many of them did. Because through the works of the church, through the sacraments, there were boxes to check. And if they had them all checked, they felt pretty confirmed that salvation was on their horizon. It's like I've gotten all the ordinances, we would call them, all the sacraments of the church. And so I'm good, right? Uh, and I don't have to worry so much about, about uh, other things. Is my faith sufficient, for example? And so some of them, while they were first, while they were originally grateful to be free of, of Catholic box checking, as they saw it, they missed it once it was gone. And I wonder if we sometimes feel the same. When the missionary department shifted from the old missionary discussions, wrote memorization, and this is how you explain it, and this is what you say, to preach my gospel with all of its incredible flexibility. Again, I sensed a lot of missionaries that were uh, isn't, isn't there something more set and fixed that I can just follow? And that's exactly how the Galatian saints are feeling. Old ways that were hard to follow, but at least there was a way to follow that was a little more clear. And, and there's some buyer's remorse, and Paul is concerned about this. Don't, you've been freed the prison doors are open. Don't go back inside the cell and close and lock the door on yourself. Okay? Rejoice in the freedom that God has given you. And trust in His grace and your faith to move forward. Okay? It's a higher, holier way. And when it, whether it's the youth and children's program, whether it's missionary discussions and, and, and missionary work, whether it's ministering instead of home teaching and visiting teaching, there's a lot more on us. But that's part of growing up in God. The power is in you, whereunto you are agents unto yourselves. Do many things of your own free will. Be anxiously engaged in a good cause. Don't be compelled or commanded in all things. What the Lord told the saints in our dispensation, in section 58, all those phrases I just quoted are straight out of that revelation is very similar to how Paul is feeling about the saints in Galatia. So with that in mind, let's turn to chapter 1 and, and see it all begin. Now Paul will begin with a usual salutation. We, saw, we got used to this in Romans and Corinthians. This one's interesting though, because in, to the Romans and the Corinthians, and pretty much to every other group of saints that he's going to write letters to, his salutation says a little bit about himself, but a lot more about the people he's writing to, and it's typically praise. I mean, there's going to be some chastisement uh, later on. So let's start by confirming that they're doing well in a lot of other areas. Okay? And that's what he's done elsewhere. Here, though, to the Galatians, eh, there's, not, there's the welcome, I, I'm, I'm Paul and I'm writing you a letter. But you don't see the kind of commendation you're used to. He jumps straight to the condemnation for some of the things they're doing wrong. Okay? So brace yourself, Galatian saints. We might need this kind of wake-up call ourselves. Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither of man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And not just Paul behind this, these words, but others as well. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. 
So again, we should be used to that kind of salutation. He said similar things in Romans and and Corinthians, and it's always, here's my name, here's who I am, and here's my credentials, my title as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but also the fact that I didn't ask for this responsibility. I am here by the will of God and not by the will of man. And I also love the fact that in speaking of God and his will, he also credits the Father for having raised up the Son. Here's Paul, an apostle, a witness of the resurrection, as always. Now, verse 3 through 5, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's his salutation. But notice what he said in that second half of it. Yes, I'm offering grace. I'm offering peace. The Lord always does. But has he, how does he describe the Lord? Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins? He snuck in a subtle testimony of the resurrection earlier, and now he's sneaking in a subtle testimony of the atonement here. Christ gave himself for our sins. And why did he do it? Well, partly because he knew those sins would occur. We do live in a present evil world, after all. And the Greek for world there is better translated age. We live in a tough time period. This age under Roman domination and and Jewish messianic hopes that are being fulfilled, but not in the way that they think. This age of, of opposition from outside the church, this age of apostasy within the church, we're going through hard things. This is a, t- a tough time to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar, my friends? Do we still live in a present evil age? Is the world too much with us? Do we sometimes worry about bringing children into the world during these difficult days? Do we wring our hands and lose sleep over our children or our grandchildren, wondering about the world that they will grow up in and the age where their turn on earth will take place? It's one of the things I love about the end of this salutation when Paul speaks of the resurrection and the atonement. And because of that, the day will come. Well, the way he puts it, may glory go to the, to the Father and the Son forever and ever. And the phrase forever and ever in the Greek is the same word for age that we just saw earlier when it's talking about the present evil age. So forget this age. Someday it will come to its end. And there will be an age and ages upon ages where there is nothing but the glory of God. I love Paul's reassurance. There is a certain impatience on his part. There's a certain hope for what lies on the horizon. And if we can just get through the present, our future will be glorious. Age upon age where The lion lies down with the lamb. Age upon age, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Age upon age, where there is nothing but God's glory. Without the present opposition and apostasy that is happening all around us. I don't know about you. I look forward to those ages that lie ahead. But to get there, there's an age (laughs) that we're in the midst of, that we've got to get through. Thankfully, grace and peace are offered us in our age as well. 
Well, verse 6 and 7, this is where he begins. And like I said, there hasn't been the usual commendation. Uh, to the Romans, it was, man, your faith is, is known the world over. Uh, you're amazing. Uh, in, to the Corinthians, your knowledge and your utterance are so well known. To the Galatians, well, what good thing are you known for? Well, I don't have time for that. We're going to cut straight to the chase and, and call you to repentance. In verse 6 and 7, Paul says, I marvel. And there's this sense of, I'm astonished, I'm shocked. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. How could, how could you leave when you've been invited to the ultimate messianic banquet? The ultimate feast of fat things. And yet you're leaving? You're so soon removed the Greek word for removed there could also mean transfer or change sides or desert. Like you guys are deserters. You've, you're guilty of mutiny. You have switched your allegiance. And I can't believe it happened so soon. It seems like I was just there and, and witnessing your conversion and participating in your coming unto Christ. And now you're leaving it behind? In fact, the way he puts it, you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. Well, if that's what you're leaving behind, what are you moving into? What are you replacing it with? Paul says, unto another gospel. And then he backs up a second. Well, okay, fine. It, it, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, what is this another gospel that isn't quite another gospel, but rather is more of a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, think about this in terms of the historical context. And if you remember in our discussion in the book of Acts that people don't know what to call these Christians. They haven't started calling them Christians yet. Well, by now they're starting to, right? But for as far as the, the Christians are concerned, they'd say, we're, we're Jews. We're Messianic Jews. We found our Messiah finally. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And he has risen from the grave to conquer the greatest enemies we face. Rome is, is, small, is, is not much of an enemy compared to sin and death. And so, yes, we are, we are true Jews, having found the fulfillment of every Jewish hope. But again, there's other Jews that are saying, no, and in the sake of, of brand purity, quit calling yourself Jews. We're going to label you Christians instead. And so it goes. So think about Jewish Christians sliding back into the traditions of their fathers. Or Jewish Jews just absolutely refusing to entertain the possibility of Jesus as the Messiah in the first place. And so when they're coming into town and preaching to the saints in Galatia, you got to stick with circumcision. you got to stick with the law of Moses. you got to hold to those traditions of the fathers. Well, is it another gospel? Well, yes and no. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not faith in his atoning sacrifice. It's not repentance of their sins and baptism by immersion for their remission. It's certainly not receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. No, it's not that gospel of Jesus Christ. But uh, in a way... It, it's, it isn't another gospel, because Christianity is the fulfillment of, of Jewish hopes. Christ has come to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. And so, 
We're Jews and not Jews all at the same time. This is another gospel, but not quite. If, if you think about the phrase, the new and everlasting covenant, that just rolls off the tongue. We're so used to saying it and hearing it. But if you think about it, how can it be new if it's been everlasting? In a way, those two adjectives are at odds with one another. But that's the beauty of it. This is the old covenant. It's the Old Testament. It's always been there. It's from the days of Abraham. Paul's going to talk about that a lot in Galatians. It's from the days of, of Adam. It's from premortality itself. This is the Father's promise to us all. This is an old covenant. It is an everlasting covenant. But as it is renewed upon us, as each new dispensation finds that everlasting covenant newly dispensed upon them, then I guess, yeah, it is new as well. You understand? So there is this sense of it's the old gospel, but kind of a new gospel as well. It's, so what they're preaching isn't entirely different, and yet it's different enough to be wrong. It's a perversion which suggests it's something, there, there's some particle of truth, but they've perverted it, they've changed it, they've twisted it and tweaked it. This is a counterfeit that still bears a lot of resemblance to the real thing. But it's not the real thing anymore. And that's what Paul is warning them about. Please don't go back to the old things. Remember in 2 Corinthians 3 about the veil over the Old Testament is taken away in Christ. Well, don't put the veil back on. Okay, don't cloud your vision when, especially when the Lord has already come to give sight to the blind and help you see things as they really are. He, he gets even stronger in the next two verses, eight and nine. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, oh, forget it. Let him be accursed. And the word translated accursed is anathema. And that's a word that has trickled into the English language from the Greek. And so anathema, that is absolutely off limits. It's a curse. It's a ban. It's excommunication is what he's suggesting here. All for accepting some other gospel that is dangerously close to the real thing. In fact, Paul is so concerned about that danger that he repeats himself. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. It was President Eyring that has said that repetition is meant to rivet our attention. And Paul is trying to rivet the attention of the Galatian saints. I don't care who's coming. I don't care what kinds of credentials they try to show you. Some pseudo-apostle. Remember the quote-unquote super-apostles we met last week. No, don't trust them on this. These Judaizers who claim to be Messianic Jews, oh no, they're more Jewish than Messianic, and so don't trust them. I don't even care if it's an angel, since, as we've already seen, devils can transform themselves into angels of light. Paul is so concerned about what's happening among the Galatian saints that yes, he's establishing his own apostolic authority from the very beginning and then warning his listeners or his readers away from anyone else who claims any kind of authority. If, if that authority is being exercised to pull people away from the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
it's the content that's going to matter most. It's interesting because in our day, evangelical Christians love this verse. And I don't know about you, but on my mission, I had Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, thrown in my face rather frequently. And they'd say, no, 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 I've been warned about you. You Latter-day Saints, you Mormons, have been anathematized already by Scripture. Like, anathema what? Like, yeah, Galatians. If you preach another gospel, then you're accursed. In fact, whether it's an apostle, and isn't that what you guys claim, to have apostles? Or even an angel from heaven, and ooh, that's, that's the, 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 what they love most. It's like, how is your gospel, your quote-unquote gospel, restored? The angel Moroni? Huh. Well, forget about it, because even if an angel claims to be coming from heaven, oh, if he's preaching another gospel, forget about it. You are accursed. And, hmm, well, while I can see the parallels that they're drawing, and, and of course their eyes are going to light up with a verse like that, and a restoration through apostles and angels. But think about the criterion that, that Paul is offering. It's another gospel different from the one that we have preached. And that's where we really need to, to analyze things. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as restored in this final dispensation, is it some other gospel? Is it a radical departure from all that's been said before? Or, as Peter prophesied back in Acts chapter 3, is this a restitution of all things spoken of by the prophets? Is this a, are we living in, speaking of ages, are we living in an age of restoration to overcome the age of apostasy that preceded it? Is the Lord refreshing things, as Peter said? To me, there's something powerful about getting past the, oh, the shallow parallels. Oh, angel, it said it. We, it said it. Another gospel, say he said it. But study the restored gospel, and it is not another gospel. It is new, granted, but it is everlasting. And it is a, re a restoration of the covenant that God has been making with his children throughout history. It's amazing to see the parallels, the, co the connections between dispensations past in the scriptures and dispensation present, what we're living in right now. It was actually interesting, before my mission, I, maybe the Lord knew I would be meeting people that would misquote Galatians and throw it in my face. Uh, I read a lot of books as I was preparing for my mission. And one that I remember reading that fascinated me was one by Stephen Robinson called Are Mormons Christians? And these things that other people cry blasphemy over, uh, things like you know, premortality or things like our ability, our, our potential to grow up in God and become more like Him. Oh, that, those are, that's another gospel that isn't a gospel at all, according to evangelical Christians. And yet, according to the original Christians, that's solid gospel truth. Uh, it's in Scripture. It's right here in the Bible in front of us. Jesus taught these things. Paul taught these things. And in that book, Stephen Robinson walks you through all of that. And I was, again, blown away by it but as an 18-year-old, seeing, wow, there is biblical backup for all of these doctrines that, we, that seem so unique to us. They're not unique to us at all. Well, since then, uh, that was, what, 30 years ago, 
some I can't I think it was David Paulson if I remember correctly I, I should have looked it up before I started filming. Yeah, uh, he wrote a book playing off the title uh, that Rob, of Robinson's book, and instead of Robinson's "Are Mormons Christians," this one was called "Are Christians Mormons." And what it was what it was wondering uh, through his own study of early Christian history and early Christian theology was, man, that sounds a lot like Mormonism to me. Back when we used that term. It sounds eerily familiar. That is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. To the point, again, the question, I love the title because it does beg that question. You study early Christians and you can't help but wonder, those people seem to be Latter-day Saints in the ancient days. Those were ancient day saints, but they believed the same things and held to the same gospel as the Latter-day Saints. So hold off before you jump to conclusions uh, on the basis of, oh, an angel. Forget about it. No. Peruse the contents. In fact, more than peruse, plumb the depths. Come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. And you will see the fulfillment of these prophecies, parallels of these doctrines, you will see a confirmation of the covenant that God has been making with his children from the very beginning. Anathema, I'm not concerned about that. Okay. From there, verse 10 through 12, Paul asks, For do I now persuade men or God? And other translations render that. Am I now trying to win the approval of men? Or of God. The JST makes it crystal clear. Do I now please men or God? That's the kind of persuasion Paul is is asking about. Who am I trying to please? Whose opinion am I trying to win over? The way he asks that, do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. And that's pretty stark reality. Whose kingdom am am I trying to build? Mine or the Savior's? Whose opinion matters most to me? Humanity or divinity? Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He was not a reed shaken in the wind. He was not a people pleaser. He didn't care what other people thought. He only cared about God's opinion of him. Paul was cut from the same rough cloth. Okay, But I certify you, brethren, he says, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. So it doesn't have a merely human origin. It's not based on human reasoning alone. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. This self-defense on Paul's part reminds me of the conversation Jesus and Peter had there in Caesarea Philippi. If you remember when Peter bears his testimony, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where does Jesus find that testimony's source? Oh, Peter, you rock. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. This is like Paul. I didn't get it of man. That's not the origin of my testimony or my understanding of the gospel. Where does it come from instead? As Jesus said to Peter, it's not flesh and blood. It's my Father which art in heaven. It is the rock of revelation upon which the church is being built. And Paul is is digging deep and founding his faith on that same rock. It's been revealed to me. 
That's how I know it. And that's how you've got to come to know these things yourself. In verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation, and better word for that, my behavior, my whole way of life. You've heard about this. That in times past, in the Jews' religion, and that's what I was raised in, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, or another way to say that, I tried to destroy it. And we saw that back in the book of Acts as well. He's holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen. He's, ask, he's being proactive in his persecution and trying to get permission from the Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem. Can I go take my show on the road? Can I go persecute Christians from afar and drag them back into Jerusalem so we can do with them what you've already done with Stephen? Oh, that was beyond measure. Okay? He was doing all that he could to push that agenda, wasting the Christian church. He goes on, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation. Profited there is a sense of I was advancing. I was climbing the corporate ladder faster than anybody. I was far ahead of my Jewish peers in, in persecuting what I perceived as the enemies of the faith. I was zealous. I was, in fact, overly zealous. That's what he says in the next line. Being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. I mean, that's me, Paul is saying. I was all in. I was hardcore. But my, my actions were based more in tradition than in truth. This was a zeal without knowledge. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was persecuting until he appeared to me and then asked the question, why are you doing this? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I sense that Paul is concerned about these Galatian saints. Are you kicking against some pricks yourselves? Are you turning your back having already had your vision on the road to Damascus? Are you backpedaling away from your conversion to Christ? And I understand what you've left behind. I left it behind too. I understand the, the draw of the Jewish faith. It drew me in as deeply as anyone. And if... <laughs> You think you were converted to, to Judaism? Oh, I was more deeply converted than you. You think you're zealous to, to defend that faith? Oh, I was overzealous not only to defend it, but to attack its perceived enemies. So I'm, I'm on your, I, I was on your side. I understand where you're coming from. I can see why you're being drawn back to the old ways. That other gospel sure can seem convincing. But be careful. He says in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. And that's an interesting analogy for Judaism. I mean, I was born in that faith. Okay, I, I took my first breaths as I emerged from the womb of traditional Judaism. But just as God separated me from my mother so I could live on my own, the, that same Lord separated me from my ancestral faith as well. He called me by his grace, Paul says, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. 
And as soon as that happened, he said, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. What Paul is, is trying to, to confirm here, and it's interesting, I mean, he's giving his conversion story, right? And he's explaining that, that vision he had on the road to Damascus. It stopped him in his tracks. It cured him of his overzealousness as he realized that Christ was not the enemy. Christ is the Messiah. And it's, it's pricks I'm kicking against. And I'm the one getting hurt. I, I'm not hurting his cause. I need to, I need to start moving it forward. And so, what did I do? Well, the way he puts it in that last passage, I didn't start conferring with flesh and blood. Again, it's that same phrase that Jesus uses with Peter. That's not where your testimony came from. It came directly from Father in heaven. Paul's experience was heavenly as well. It wasn't mediated by mere mortals. And so, no, I didn't go straight back to Jerusalem to sit at the apostles' feet and explain to me what I'm supposed to be doing here. Now, his was more of an independent conversion. There were no apostles around on the road to Damascus. And from there, yes, he went to Ananias and received his sight. But the way he describes the aftermath here, I went, off, I went east. I went off into Arabia, probably the Transjordan, other side of the, the Jordan River. And it was there that I really started to learn and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is trying to establish is that my testimony and understanding of the gospel is an independent experience. This is, this is Enos out in the wilderness alone. This is Moses atop Mount Sinai with no one else around. This is oh, the pioneers coming to know God in their extremities off on the plains. This is missionaries struggling to come to know things for themselves, and by themselves, finally coming to know them. In my own experience as a, a young missionary, I had seen so many of my friends open their mission calls, surrounded by everyone else that's there shouting and cheering when they hear, when they hear the news. I thought that was cool. I, I still do. It's amazing to see this, the community support and mutual enthusiasm. But in my own case, I didn't want to do it that way. At the time, when I was 19, I thought, you know, as much as I love my friends, they're not going to be on my mission with me. My mission's going to be me and God. And so I want to start my mission, open my call with just the two of us. And so as a freshman at BYU myself, when I got the phone call from the this Cannon Center mail office and said, your mission call's here, and I ran down and grabbed the envelope. This is before they send it out via email. And I ran home, uh, back to my, my dorm room, locked it in a drawer, and then went to class trying to pay attention. Unsuccessfully, I assure you. But after class was over, I ran back home, pulled out my mission call, put on a shirt and tie, and walked a few blocks to the Provo Temple. And I just remember sitting there on a bench outside the temple, and praying, saying, Heavenly Father, it's you and me today. And I don't know what's in this envelope. Well, I do, but I don't know where. But I pray you'll be with me. I will go wherever you send me.
I just hope you'll come as my companion. It was a powerful experience, the two of us, opening that mission call together. And an even more powerful experience, the two of us serving the people of Puerto Rico. Yes, there was always at least a third with a companion, a mortal companion. But again, I love Paul's sense of independent witness here. I, I'm not trying to appease mere mortals, okay? That's, not, that's never been my approach. Not from the first initial movement toward truth. So please gain a similar independent testimony of your own. In verse 18, he says, Then after three years, and here's his period of preparation and purification, after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Now I'm finally going to associate with, with apostles and understand from them where I should go moving forward. I came to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. And remember him from the Jerusalem council, that he's one of the church leaders there in, in Jerusalem itself, trying to make the kinds of compromises that will be necessary at the Jerusalem council. There's, there's Paul's chance to meet that pillar of righteousness as well. Now, the things which I write unto you, he said, behold, before God, I lie not. So I, I'm swearing this before God and before you. This is the honest truth. And then afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Thus begins his ministry, his missions. But from the start, Paul is establishing his independence. I'm not a yes man for the apostles. I'm not easily swayed by human opinion. I, I know what I know, and I know who I know it from. And so you Galatian saints, please listen to the message that I'm giving you. He concludes this first chapter, verse 22 to 24. I was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. So kind of the end of his conversion story. I went from persecutor to preacher. And everybody loved hearing that story. Okay, I remember a great friend in Puerto Rico when I was there. I actually just got to see him again a month or so ago. He was here in the United States to visit. Uh, Victor Felix is his name, and he was a Baptist minister. And when the missionaries met him, and he was humble and open enough to at least entertain the possibility they might have something to share, when he joined the church, not that he'd ever been a persecutor before. This was not he who persecuted us in times past. But still, someone that was an outsider is now an insider. And he is now preaching the faith, which once he doubted. Oh, it, I loved that story. I loved having Victor meet people. To this day, he is a pillar of the church in his community. And the missionaries live in his, in his home and... And he provides for them and, and gives them all the, the backup that he possibly can. And Paul was the same kind of convert. Uh, you Galatian saints, please know my heart, know my past, as I try to point you to a more Christian future. From there, chapter 2, he's going to begin teaching more directly. Oh, the, He's going to make the point he's come to make. 
He's going to build on what he's just said about his own past and his conversion. He says in verse 1 and 2, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. So he's describing his mission here. And 14 years? Whew, that's a long one. That's the same length as the mission of the sons of Mosiah among the Lamanites. And, and there's some similarities there. If the Lamanites are streaming into the church, how are the Nephites going to react? And in a similar vein, all these Gentiles that are being converted during Paul's mission and Barnabas's mission and Titus and Timothy and so on, who, how, are the, how, is, how is the Jewish side of the church going to react to that? Well, 14 years he's been working. And I went up by revelation. That's how he always got his marching orders from heaven, not from earth. I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. You get a sense there that Paul is like, oh, please tell me that these last 14 years have not been a waste, that it was not in vain. I went forth under the call of God, under divine direction, anywhere the Spirit seemed to lead me. And we saw that through the book of Acts. The Spirit saying, go here, or don't go there, or speak to these people, but pull back in this area. It was a divinely directed mission. But the danger of that is, oh, how are people going to react if they weren't privy to the same revelation I received? It's just more of the, the bureaucracy side of the church. Uh, and, and how are they going to respond when I've kind of been doing things my own way? Well, thank you, Paul, for showing us the example of following the Spirit but also coming back to the brethren and wanting to find out, are you okay with what I've been doing? Now, I don't know if this was a matter of maybe I can get forgiveness instead of permission. I, I, I don't think so. He got his permission from, from above. But as he came back after that, all this time, you know, I should return and report. I should speak with the leaders of the church here in Jerusalem, uh, Peter and James and anyone else who I can meet. I, I barely know these guys. I was what, Peter with Peter for 15 days, and then I headed off on a 14-year mission. Interesting to think. In our day, the apostles are so close. They meet together weekly. But in a day before technology and transportation made that possible, they're off around the Mediterranean somewhere, and years and years could pass without any personal communication or association. Well, Paul comes back. I want to know from those of reputation. I'm going to do it privately. I just want behind closed doors so that the, if there's factions within the church, I, I don't want to be swayed by them. It's not their opinion that matters. So I'm not going to bring this up at general conference and say, hey, this is what I've been doing around the Mediterranean and all these Gentiles that have come into the church this last decade and a half. No, because I have a feeling that back in Jerusalem especially, there will be a stronger Jewish, Jewish faction within the church. And if they're hearing about all what I, that I'm doing among the Gentiles, will they freak out? Will they be up in arms? No, I, it's not the democracy. <laughs> this is the theocracy. This is God's kingdom, and I'm going to speak with the leaders of that kingdom. Peter, James, others. And ask them privately, what do you think about the Jewish conversion? Peter, I already know you had your vision that started all of this with the conversion of Cornelius and those that were with him. But I've taken this to a whole other level. <laughs> okay? I've taken that show on the road. 
where, I mean, there, there, there were a few Gentiles here in Judea, but go, go off into Asia Minor, go, go to Galatia, and there are Gentiles aplenty. This is what I taught them. What do you think? Well, verse 3, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So, even though Timothy was circumcised to be able to fit in better among the, the Jewish side of the church, the same was not required of Titus. In Timothy's case, it might have been because his mother was a Jew, whereas his father was the Gentile, the, the Greek. And so, oh, you should have been circumcised already before any of this happened. Your mom should have seen to that. Here, though, Titus, different situation. He's a Greek through and through, full, full-blooded Gentile. He didn't need to be circumcised. He wasn't required to be circumcised. And they were okay with that, is what he's saying here. Okay? The, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. I mean, you go back and read Acts 15. And they made compromises, but circumcision was not part of that. That was not required of Gentile converts. And I never asked it of anyone that was going to join the church when I was there. So Paul's confirming here. No problem allowing Gentiles into the church. However, he goes on, that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily or privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Oh, the plot thickens here. He's gone privately to the leaders of the church. Is it okay what we've been doing? And yes, it is. So I'm okay not circumcising the, or having the, Jew, the Gentile convert circumcised? No, of course not. That's not required of them. Where, where's Titus? Reassure Titus. He's fine. Okay? Wonderful convert, wonderful leader of the church, great missionary companion. He does not need to be circumcised either. So we're good. But the problem is, as he puts it here, there were these false brethren, unawares that were brought in, and they... They came in privately, but almost as undercover agents for the Jewish faction of the church. And they were hoping to spy out our liberty. Now, if it's marks of circumcision that they're looking for, then yes, it would need to be privately and spying out. But in in whatever these clandestine ways that they came up with, Figuring out, oh yes, we now have evidence. Then they can sneak back to the Jewish faction and, and whisper what they've discovered and said, yeah, there's a bunch of Gentile converts. One of the, even a, a big missionary companion of Paul, and he hasn't been circumcised. So here's these people coming into the fulfillment of Judaism, and they haven't fulfilled Judaism's requirements. It's as if they're spitting on Abraham's grave by refusing the token of the Abrahamic covenant. Did they skip over Genesis 17 in their, in their first discussion? Now, think about what Paul is up against here. And is he going to, how's, how's he going to respond? At the end of this passage, he does say this. This is in verse 5. To whom, so he's referring to those false brethren unawares, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, that's a confusing translation as well. A better one, we didn't give in to them for a moment. That's that idea of, no, not for an hour did we give place by subjection. We didn't subject ourselves to them at all. 
despite their up in arms and their outrage that, that our companions had not been circumcised. No, we, we pushed back against that. When he says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you, other translations, we made sure the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. We're looking out for our Gentile converts. We're not wanting them to be dragged back into a Judaism that had been fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, that, that ship has sailed. It served its purpose. It prepared us for the freedom that would come through the grace of Jesus Christ. These Gentiles cut to the chase. They got to that goal. And they don't need to go back and fulfill things that, that were already fulfilled in Christ. From there, verse... 6 through 8, but of these who seemed to be somewhat, and what does that even mean? Seemed to be somewhat? These are those who seemed to be influential, somewhat important, held in high esteem. So those who seemed to be somewhat, oh, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. So there again is Paul, he's standing independent. I wasn't overawed by true apostles. I'm certainly not going to be overawed by false ones, okay? I don't care who they are. God will judge them. I don't have to worry about it. I'm unimpressed with worldly reputation. God's opinion is what matters. Anyway, for they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now pause there for a second. We're kind of mid-thought for, for Paul right here, but make sure you understand what he's saying here. Paul knows who called him and who he was called to serve. I'm a servant of the Lord. It's the Lord that called me. And he called me to serve Gentiles. I mean, I tried serving Jews everywhere I went. I'd always beeline it straight to the synagogue. And knowing the Old Testament as well as I did, I was constantly trying to prove to people, based on Messianic prophecy, that it was all fulfilled in Jesus. The problem is, too many of those hearers were so hard-hearted, no fleshy tables to write on, and they rejected the message. And so, well, the messenger rejected them. I turned from the Jews to the Gentiles and began preaching to them. And that's where I found great success. These people were well prepared. They didn't think they had it all. Whereas the Jews were kept back from the whole because they held so zealously to the part. So you understand what I'm saying? There's been a division of labor and the Lord himself is behind it all. God called Peter to bear the gospel to the Jews. And he called me, Paul, to bear the gospel to the Gentiles. He, it's, it's, it's like, I'll take the circumcised, you take the uncircumcised, ready, break, and they go and do that. Okay, What Paul is describing here is, is how the gospel is being... Well, I'll put it this way. Think about, back to Nephite missions and Lamanite missions... It was Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni that were called by the Lord, or felt called, to go preach to the Lamanites. But what about Alma, the younger, who was just as tight with them as anybody else? He was called to go preach among the Nephites. And so Alma is the Peter equivalent, and, and Ammon is the Paul equivalent. 
but it's all the same work being orchestrated by the same divine director, okay? God's behind all of this. You get the same sense in our day when different apostles are given responsibility for different parts of the world. All the time that President Nelson spent in Eastern Europe, for example, because he was given responsibility for that part of the world. Well, Paul knows his responsibility. It's been to the Gentiles. But Peter, the rock, was totally okay with that. He recognized that the Lord who called him to one part of the vineyard had called me to another part. So verse 9 through 10, Paul picks up and continues his thought. And when James, Cephas, and John, there's Peter, James, and John, not the same James that, that we're used to from the Gospels. That James was killed by, by Herod already. But now James, the brother of Jesus. But those three, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, and they were pillars indeed. This was the strength of the church there in Jerusalem. Those who seemed to be pillars, when they perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Again, we'll take the Gentiles, you take the Jews. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So there's the only real oh, caveat they gave us. And it wasn't even a caveat. They said, yeah, go to the Gentiles. We'll take care of the Jews. You go take care of the Gentiles. Just please remember the poor. Because poverty knows no borders. Poverty can affect Gentiles and Jews equally. Poverty is no respecter of persons. And so please, though we're dividing and conquering as far as the kinds of people, the, the, the religious background and ethnic background that we're addressing, no matter who you're speaking to, can we all keep in mind the poor wherever they may be? And Paul was like, oh, no, no problem. I, I'm, I was going to do that anyway. I, I'm wired toward that kind of compassion and empathy. We saw that already among the Corinthians. I'm trying to gather as much as I can to go help the poor, wherever they might be. Okay? So what I love here is, is Paul and Peter coming together before they go apart to head out in different directions to bless the kingdom. Again, with the Lord behind it all. But the best phrase, in my opinion, is that part in verse 9. What was it that convinced Peter, James, and John that, that what Paul was doing was okay? Listen to the phrase. They perceived the grace that was given unto me. I, I hope we can do a better job of that ourselves. Of ha keeping an eye open to the grace God has given to other people who might be doing things a little differently or heading off in a direction different from the one that we're going. I think that's true within our wards and stakes where someone feels that this is where they need to place their, more of their efforts. Wonderful. I can perceive the grace of God that he's given you to do that. So by all means, please continue that personal ministry. I think it's also helpful and important perceiving people outside of the church. And I pray they'll return the favor and perceive that in us. When I was at Divinity School and saw wonderful people preparing for the ministry in other faiths, I was grateful to 
perceive the grace that God had given them. And deep faith and sincere desires to help people, to make a difference in the world. That's grace. That is God using everyone who he can, everyone who's willing. Orson F. Whitney said there's way too much work for God to do on the earth to only do it through the Latter-day Saints. We can't do it all ourselves. And what a blessing that a generous God involves all of his children in his work. He gives them all his grace. These are gifts he multiplies across the body of Christ. Okay? Just because they are non-members, as we call them, does not mean they are not members of the body of Christ. He cares about everyone equally. And so can we do better at that? Can we look at those of other faiths? Can we look at good people doing good things and pray for the eyes to perceive God's grace upon them? And again, to those friends of other faiths, to those evangelical Christians that are concerned about the angel that helped restore ancient truth, those that are quick to call anathema, I pray that you can perceive the grace that is upon us, that we are striving as well as we can, imperfectly at best, to do something with the grace God has given, to act upon the calls that have come our way. If we can just see past those differences and come together, it'd be amazing what, I think we'd do a better job of getting through this present evil age and on to the messianic age to come. Well, verse 11 and 12. But when Peter was come to Antioch, and here's again where the plot thickens. Paul and Peter have had some good times so far. A good 15 days of initial introduction, uh, post-mission, return and report, and all is well. Uh, Peter's going to be the apostle to the Jews. Paul's going to be apostle to the Gentiles. We're great. But when Peter was come to Antioch, and Antioch isn't Jerusalem. It's in Antioch that, that Jewish Christians are first called Christians. Uh, it, it's starker brand purity. It's more zealous opposition. And Peter's now in that ten- territory, more Gentile territory. When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, wait, wait, wait. Conflict in the quorum? We, we don't see that anymore. Well, in the early days of the church, we did. In Joseph Smith's period, there were apostles withstanding one another to the face, blaming each other for things that they didn't see eye to eye on. I'm amazed and grateful for the unity that prevails in the presiding quorums now, but it wasn't always that way. And that's true of the ancient church as well. Here's Paul withstanding Peter, the rock, the chief apostle, to the face and saying, yep, you deserve this withstanding. You deserve to be blamed here. Wow, what had Peter done? Well, keep reading. For before that certain came from James, he, Peter, did eat with the Gentiles and saw no problem in that. But when they were come, and who's the they? Well, those certain people who came from James. When they had come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now pause here so we can figure out what's going on. Whatever had just happened, Paul was ticked off. Paul was angry. And remember, Paul's he was zealous, right? He was zealous to defend Judaism before his conversion, and he is even more zealous to defend Christianity after his mission. 
nothing can move him. He doesn't care what people think, right? He, he is an independent witness of the resurrection and the atonement and the need to share the gospel. He knows who he serves, and it's the Lord, nobody else. So here's a guy with the guts to stand up to Peter. And what he's angry about is it seems that Peter is flip-flopping in terms of how open he is to these Gentile converts to the church. And the tipping point is when some people come from James up to Antioch to see how things are going. Now for this, we really need to know the identities of everybody. James, again, James, James as in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John, is, is already, has already been martyred. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is James that took a while to even accept his brother as the Messiah. When he's growing up with him, and eh, it's still too close quarters. And if no man is prophet in his own country, then definitely no man is Messiah in his own home. And so, yeah, my big brother Jesus, king of the Jews, whatever. But he, he comes around. He receives a witness and is converted. But man, he's still staunchly Jewish in his background, in his outlook on life. And he's there in Jerusalem. He's the one that helps iron out the compromise in the, at the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. Uh, he's kind of, picture him almost as the Jerusalem stake president, okay? Uh, there's still Peter, who's in charge of the whole church. He's the chief apostle. But James is, is really kind of boots on the ground, helping uh, supervise things, run things, lead things in Jerusalem, which, with all of its heavy Jewish component. And so as he irons out the compromises of the Jerusalem conference, a lot of them do lean in a somewhat Jewish direction. Uh, of course, Gentiles can come in, and I'm going to swallow hard and plug my nose and say that you don't have to be circumcised. Fine. That, that was where he really felt like he was giving something, I'm sure. Uh, we'll honor baptism as the token of the covenant instead of circumcision as the token of the covenant. It's the same covenant, just a different token. Okay, I'm fine with that. At least I'm trying to be. Uh, but I do want to hold to at least some of the Mosaic law in terms of no idolatry, okay? And uh, things, blood and things strangled. There's a bit of kosher laws that I think are worth preserving, okay? And so here he is really trying to strike this balance. And if James is trying to strike the balance between Jew and Gentile convert, between eternal covenant and, and commandment versus, oh, passing tradition, those are hard to figure out, to tease out the differences between, between Latter-day Saint culture versus Latter-day Saint doctrine, for example. That can be tricky. James was trying, but he did seem to lean more in a Jewish direction, whereas Paul is leaning heavily in a Gentile direction. He knew that call came from God to do that for him. But where does that put Peter? Peter, this is a tough position for Peter, because... Not only is he responsible for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, he's responsible for the Gentile Christians coming in, in in Antioch and everywhere else as well. He has authority and seniority over both James in his Jewish direction and Paul in his Gentile direction. Mm, so how do I balance things? How do I keep everybody happy? All these factions within the church. If Peter, excuse me, if Paul was worried about divisions in Corinth, well, Peter's worried about divisions everywhere throughout the church. The buck stops with him, right? Well, Peter goes to Antioch. Paul's there, and he's seeing how things are going. And Antioch is an interesting place as well. It's not Jerusalem. 
You remember the detail that the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch? And so there's, there's a need for brand purity among the Jews in Antioch. At least they perceive that. And so, yes, they're coming up with a new nickname for these Christians. Oh, there's some strong feelings there. And so you picture Peter. Oh, how, how am I going to keep the peace here? Well, when he first goes... And, Peter, and Paul is like, hey, Peter, so glad that you're here. Haven't seen you in a long time. Uh, look at all these. I'd love you to meet these wonderful fellow Christians here. And Paul and Peter is like, hey, great to meet you. Let's sit down and eat. Let's have communion together. And there's no problem with Peter having communion with these Gentile saints. This was the same Peter who was worried about that when he first went to Cornelius, right? Like, I don't think I should even be here. A Jew hanging out with Gentiles? That's a no-no. But I did just have this vision that said, don't call anything unclean if the Lord has made it clean. And I'm starting to see he meant people, not animals. Uh, I think God's okay with Gentiles. So I think I'm okay with Gentiles too. Hey, Cornelius, great to meet you. That changed everything. And when he first gets to Antioch, it's, it's just like that. The problem comes when certain people from James, from Jerusalem, from the Jewish leaning side of the church, are, are sent off to Antioch. And I do wonder if, whether it's James or whether it's these people that are sent from him, are they out looking for things? I mean, this doesn't have to be the, the kind of those brethren unawares that were sneaking in to privily spy out their liberty, like we saw in the first chapter. But is there a certain sense of, let's make sure the Gentiles are doing things right. And it's only after their arrival that all of a sudden, Peter's behavior seems to change. And he doesn't eat with the Gentile converts the way he had before. There's the same communion doesn't exist. You see why Paul would get mad about that? Up in arms, blame Peter, withstand him to his face? There's friction here. Because it's, it's like, Peter, what, what are you doing? When the Jewish side isn't around, you're totally cool with the Gentile side. But as soon as the Jewish side does come here, then you can't hang out with the Gentiles anymore? I mean, put this in racial terms, and it'll make a lot more sense to us. That if you're open and you're tolerant and there's no bigotry or prejudice, and so, I mean, hanging out with people of, a, of another race, no problem. Wonderful. Oh, but then people of your own race come with you and all of a sudden it's like, oh, sorry, we can't. We're not friends anymore. I mean, have you ever been treated differently by someone depending on who that someone is with? And when they're alone or with a certain group of friends, you're totally tight. And they love hanging out with you, and you feel like you're great friends. But then when, when they're with a different group, they treat you like they don't even, don't even know who you are. That kind of stuff seems to happen in junior high and high school all the time. But is it still happening even within the church? Now, again, maybe I lack some of Paul's zealousness or overzealousness. But I do want to cut Peter some slack because he's trying and this is a difficult position to be in. It would have been so much easier if Jesus were still here to, to smooth out the ruffled feathers, but it's on me now. And 
I do not want to alienate Paul's converts, but I don't want to alienate James's side of things either. And I'm in charge of the whole church. This is a tough... Peter is caught between a rock and a hard place. And I feel that he's doing the best that he can. But how do I keep two opposing forces together somehow? I remember talking to Richard Bushman after Rough Stone Rolling was written. And it's the definitive biography of Joseph Smith, written by one of the great historians of our time. And not just Latter-day Saint historian, just historian in general. Richard Bushman taught history at Columbia University and won awards, uh, just a preeminent historian of, of early New England. And, and yet also a deeply committed, testimony-bearing Latter-day Saint. And he pulled out all the stops when he wrote that book. He relied upon his testimony as well as the discipline of history. But the hard part was, his book felt too oh, scholarly and too... It, it showed too many warts. It showed too much humanity for the saints. But then it also showed too much testimony for the secular scholars. And the saints were like, Brother Bushman, where's your faith? Don't you believe in the prophet Joseph? And the, the secular scholars were like, come on, Dr. Bushman. Where's your discipline? You actually believe these things happened? We don't have documentary evidence. And so in some ways it was darned if I do, darned if I don't. And man without a country as he's trying to bridge a gap that people on either side of that gap don't want bridged. And that's where Paul is coming, or excuse me, that's where Peter is coming from here. Yeah, it's, this is tough. Okay, let's cut them some slack. I understand where Paul's coming from. I understand where James is coming from. I understand where Peter is coming from. It's messy. And in our own human interaction, it gets messy too. Can we cut each other some slack? I, I pray that's the case. Well, verse 13, the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. So they seem to be going on Peter's side and they wouldn't eat with the Gentile converts. And I wonder too, was it just not, well, not even associating with them? Or was there some kind of food involved that technically, I mean, the kosher laws have been fulfilled so we don't have to worry about it, but uh, this is food that is going to raise some Jewish eyebrows. So maybe I just won't come to dinner. We can still hang out at church uh, or maybe I'm going to only choose from the Jewish side of the menu here. Uh, forgive me, Gentile converts. Well, Peter seems to be dissembling. Other Jews seem to be dissembling likewise. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. And dissimulation and dissembled here, another way to translate that is hypocritically. Or he was acting the hypocrite. And that's how Paul is feeling about it. He's the one writing this letter, right? It's like, Peter, you hypocrite? No wonder you need to be blamed. I will stand you to your face. And you too, Barnabas? You're going that way? Come on. Quit acting hypocritically and putting on a kind face when you're looking at Gentiles with no Jews around. But then switching the mask once the Jewish faction comes into town. Oh, be careful. Now, even Barnabas, you... You're starting to lean in the Jewish direction. I thought I knew you better than that. You were on these Gentile missions with me, for crying out loud. <sighs> so what does Paul say? When I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, 
at least not uprightly as Paul saw things. I said unto Peter, before them all, so he's going to call him out in public, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, then why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? You see what strong-willed Paul is accusing Peter of? You're a Jew, just like I am, but you live like a Gentile when you're with the Gentiles. Do you expect the Gentiles to live like the Jews when they're with them? Is that what you're asking? Now, this might be Paul overstating the case. Because Peter is not demanding that they be circumcised. Peter's, again, just trying to keep the peace, and that's hard to do. It might even be harder when you've got this firebrand like Paul calling me out in public when I'm just trying to walk a middle way that is incredibly narrow. Okay? This is hard what I'm trying to accomplish. Please cut me some slack. Well, Paul seems to be unwilling to cut anybody slack on this. He says in verse 15 and 16, We who are Jews by nature, and that applies to Paul as much as it does to Peter. It's like, hey, Peter, we're both Jews. We were both raised this way. We were born the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, We are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. And I can picture Paul saying sinners sarcastically. It's like, oh, we are the Jews by nature. We're not sinners like those, those disgusting, those dirty Gentiles out there, are we? I mean, that's what, what you Jews picture the Gentiles to be. They're untouchable, right? How could Jesus talk to a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well? Oh, perish the thought. What, what, what do we do when this Canaanite woman comes to plead on behalf of her, her sick child? Oh, just turn a cold shoulder, talk to the hand, leave us alone. Those dirty, untouchable Gentiles out there. Oh no, we're not them. But then Paul turns to the doctrine. And this is where the book of Galatians really becomes more, more powerful, more applicable. He says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So this is just like what he's going to teach a little later to the Romans. It says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the law comes to close every mouth to stop us from rationalizing that, oh yeah, the law justifies me. It's like, no, the law condemned you because you didn't keep the law perfectly. It's as if Paul is trying to remind Peter and anyone else there that's leaning in the Jewish direction, the Jewish side cannot save you. We cannot be justified by the works of the law. The law can't work on our behalf because we didn't keep it the way it demanded. Because of that, what's our only other hope? It's like we've come to a fork in the road. And on the one hand, we have the, way, the Jewish way, and the other hand, we have the Gentile way. Or maybe I should say the Christian way. Because the Jewish way is law, is law and works and perfect obedience. But as soon as you start going down that path, anytime your foot slips, any link of the chain that breaks, you're a goner. And you were meant to be a goner on that side. Remember when we discussed this in the book of Romans? He set, the law set you up for failure. 
so that the gospel could set you up for success. The law became a dead end, and you took that path only to see the dead end, which then proved to you, ah, the only real path there is then is the straight and narrow path leading to Jesus Christ. It's the path of grace. And yes, grace involves its own law. There is a law of faith. But if I'll follow that law instead of the law of works, and if I live within that, it's by the grace of God that I'll be saved. Again, it's in the book of Romans that Paul fleshes this out uh, to great length and depth. But here he's wrestling with it. This is one of the first places we see him really laying this out, that this is how justification comes. And it's in the context of this conflict. It's actually interesting that sometimes when we go through messy things and hard things and there's people pushing and I don't know what to do, it's often in those kind of circumstances that what matters most really starts to become more clear. We start to see doctrinally there's got to be an answer to this question. And so, Lord, please open our eyes. Help us understand what's the doctrinal basis that we should build our decision upon. Here, for Paul, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the fact that the law cannot save us. It's helpless to do that. So verse 17 and 18, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, that's where we've chosen that path and the fork in the road. If, while we seek that, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? Oh, you can almost predict the next two words. God forbid, which is what he said over and over and over in his letter to the Romans. Here's his kind of initial foray into that kind of rhetoric. It's as if Paul is reading the mind of those on the Jewish side of the issue. Oh yeah, you're scared to death of cheap grace. Scared to death of sloppy agape. I totally get it. I understand. You're thinking that, hey, you don't have to live the law. Great. Well, pile it up on Jesus. Put it on his tab. I can do whatever I want. And Paul is saying, God forbid. This is not giving us some license to break law because there's still law on Christ's side. There's still commandments. There's still a moral law even if the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. No, I am not saying that. Here's the bumper bowling, okay? I'm trying to swing the pendulum away from that extreme, but not by swinging it to the opposite extreme. I'm, I'm aiming for the Goldilocks zone. Trust me on that. But the problem is, because you're so scared of the potential overcorrection, you're not allowing the initial correction to take place. It's like the pendulum is starting to swing away from Jewish legalism to Christian covenant, which balances justice and mercy and law and love, righteousness and repentance. It tries to keep it all in proper balance. But because you are so afraid that as the pendulum starts swinging toward the middle, oh, no, 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 it's going to overswing. What do you end up doing? You start pushing it back to the initial extreme. And that's moving them in the wrong direction. Well, it's moving in them in one wrong direction because you're scared to death of them moving in the opposite wrong direction. There's a right direction in between. We've just got to help them get there. The way he puts it in verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, 
I make myself a transgressor. And that's fascinating doctrine. That's, that's why Paul is so concerned about this, this overreaction to a potential overreaction. You understand what I'm getting at? This is, this is tricky, but picture it if you will. That he's trying to get them into the middle, into the Goldilocks zone. It, the, the pendulum was too far on the Jewish side. So, yes, apostle to the Gentiles. We've got to teach grace. We've got to teach faith. Now, the Jewish side is like, whoa, 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 careful. The irony of proving contraries. And, and this is what Paul is trying to do here. We dealt on this at, uh, or dwelt on this at length in our discussion of Romans. But the challenge of proving contraries is we are typically blind to the, to the weakness hiding behind our strength. But we're totally eyes wide open to the weakness on the other side. And we're blind to its re uh, related strength. I, I don't know if I'm explaining this well. Remember how every attribute is a coin with both a heads and a tails? Okay? Remember, we talked about this in Romans. If every attribute has both a positive and a negative potential, it's a virtue, but it has the potential of becoming a vice if it's put on steroids, if it's pushed to the extreme. Well, that's why I need the contrary coin to keep me in balance. Now, granted, that contrary coin has a heads and a tails as well. But if I can keep that on heads, it'll keep this on heads. It's like spinning magnets, and as soon as they kind of lock into place, it holds them and keeps them from going further. Well, that's why I need a contrary coin. My coin, with its strength, seems to become a weakness once I put it, push it to the extreme. So let me tie it to a contrary coin that, yes, has the potential to turn to its vice as well. But the virtue, this virtue will keep, each virtue will keep the other virtue in place. You with me? I hope. But like I said, if I've got a virtuous coin that I feel very strongly about, and, and again, Satan can confirm me in that because it's a virtue he's confirming. He wants me to play to my strength because now I'm blind to my weakness. Well, that's the problem. I am blind to my weakness. What I'm not blind to is the weakness of the opposite coin. Why do you think I've been steering clear of it? Why do you think proving contraries is so difficult? And that's what Paul is wrestling with here. I'm aware of the, the potential negatives of the legalistic approach to you have to keep every commandment. I'm aware of that. And so I'm trying to bring the church into the position of grace. Now, I know what you're concerned about. If we overswing the pendulum, then the strength of mercy can flip over. And instead of mercy as a virtue, it becomes licentiousness as a vice. It becomes, oh, you're, you're too easygoing. You're now allowing everything. And your permissiveness is getting in the way of real discipleship. Paul is admitting here, I, I understand that concern. I, uh, believe me, I, I was overzealous myself. I'm not blind to the tails of that coin. But are you blind to the, the tails of your own? I, I'm trying to be fully aware of both and combine them in a way that by proving contraries, truth can be made manifest. That's my whole purpose here. My worry, though, is as you're so overly concerned about presuming upon God's grace, you end up pushing people back 
toward the extreme of legalism. It's like they started going down the, the, that path. It was, it was blockaded. It's a dead end. The law shuts my mouth. I cannot justify myself. I cannot keep the law perfectly. So what's my only other option? It's Jesus. I will be saved by grace because there's no other way to be saved. Well, because you're so concerned that we'll start presuming upon that grace, then you put a roadblock on that side and now people really are stuck. Because if option two ends up having a dead end, then what do I do from here? Well, maybe I didn't look hard enough on path number one. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. Maybe I really am expected to live the law perfectly and it was my own failings that made it look like there was a blockade there. No, I got to try harder. I got to do more. And all of a sudden I'm back to my toxic perfectionism and my scrupulosity and, and my self-loathing because I cannot do it the way God commands. But you, but you warned me about presuming upon his grace. You warned me that it's too it's sloppy agape and it's too easy. So that, you understand, I'm, I'm stuck. What am I going to do? And here the way he puts it, oh, you got to go build again what you destroyed? You have to go back to the, the legalism path? Because if you do, guess what happens? I make myself a transgressor, is what Paul just said. And how does that happen? Well, remember, the law is unbending. The law as a chain requires that not a single link be broken. But since I've broken links, you're forcing me to go back and pick up the chain and, and swing across the chasm on that? It's not going to hold. I tried to explain this in our study of Romans, that we think that repentance is us asking Jesus to come over with a welding torch and, and reforge my link so that my chain will actually hold. And this time, I promise, I'll, I'll pull it off. This time, I won't break a single one. And it's like, yeah, good luck with that. Perfection from this moment forward? I don't think so. But by forcing myself to hold to that as my only option, then the only conclusion is that I'm a sinner. I make myself a transgressor. Do you remember that fascinating phrase in section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Brace yourself, this is a haunting one. Section 82 verse 7 is where the Lord warns, Unto that sin who sinneth shall the former sins return. Oh, yikes. Now, we talked about that a couple years ago in the Doctrine and Covenants. That it's not like it's a game of musical chairs, and if I happen to die on a bad day, then, oh, great, all my old sins come rushing back. Careful about jumping to that conclusion. The idea is sinning to the point that the covenant is over, and I'm no longer connected to Christ. And if I'm not connected to Christ, then of course all the former sins return, because they're on me now. I wouldn't let Jesus take them. We use the analogy of marriage and, and bank accounts. And though my, I'm in the red, Jesus is in the black. And as long as I am married to him, we have a joint account. And Christ, in, his, in the riches of his goodness, is able to more than make up for my failures financially. The problem is not me making another mistake 
and, and spending money I, I thought I had that I didn't. The mistake is, did I divorce my covenant companion? Because if I did and I no longer have a joint account, then all my debits come rushing back to haunt me and I'm going to get, I'm, I'm bankrupt. I am going to be foreclosed upon. I'm going to debtor's prison. Okay? So it's not an accountant I need. It's a marriage therapist. I need to make sure I'm still covenant connected to Christ. Then I'll be okay. It is by grace, that grace, that I will be saved from debtor's prison. The problem then, according to section 82, is if I sever the relationship, if I divorce Jesus, then I'm back on my, with my bank account. And all those former sins that had been offset by Christ's grace come rushing back to haunt me. That's what Paul is getting at here. That if I'm rebuilding things, if I'm expecting to reforge my chain, then I'm responsible for every broken link both past as well as present and future. Those, I didn't take the, the path of grace. I rebuilt the path of law. And little did I know I was reconstructing my own prison. The one Jesus had freed me from. I'm amazed how clearly Paul gets this. This is not something as simple as, why didn't you come to dinner with us, Peter? It was, do you not understand the gravity of the, the doctrinal dangers that we're, we're messing with? Because if we force Gentiles back into Jewish legalism, if we even force Jewish Christians back into Jewish non-Christians, Everybody's a goner, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Please do not rebuild that prison. Now he says in verse 19, continuing on this doctrinal discourse now. This is where the, the letter goes from the, the specifics of, of dinner problems to the more general principles of grace versus law. He says in 19, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I already burned that bridge because the bridge was collapsing underneath me. I wanted to destroy the possibility of people walking that way because they were goners. But since I'm dead to the law, the only other option, ooh, alive unto God. And that's the best option there is. He says, I am crucified with Christ. And that's something he builds on in Romans as well. Remember, Galatians is kind of practice Romans, <laughs> dress rehearsal. And so crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. You see what happens when we've crucified the natural man? I'm still alive. It was only the negative side of me that I had to lay down in the grave, in that watery grave of baptism. No, the rest of me still lived on. The spiritual man or woman was raised from that grave. I have life in Christ. Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Such a beautiful testimony here. Yes, I'm in the flesh, but really I'm in the faith. And the Lord loves me. The Lord gave himself for me. It's what allows me to rely upon his grace. It's also what warns me against presuming upon that grace. I would never do that to him. I love him too much because he loves me so much. As one last word of reassurance, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, well, then Christ is dead in vain. And how's that for a stark conclusion? If, that, if door number one really could have opened, if the path of law really could have got us across the pit, if that chain could have held, pick your metaphor, without a single link breaking under our own weight of imperfection, then great. Go that route. Take that door. Walk that path. Swing across the chain. Be my guest. But then why did Jesus come? If he came to blaze a trail of grace, if he came to allow us to leave our pile of broken links on our side of the chasm and just invite us to come unto him and hold on to him for dear life, if he came to free us from the demands of a broken law, when the law didn't have to be broken. Why did, why did he come? You see what Paul is pushing on Peter and on the rest of the Jewish side of things? James, if you're there in Jerusalem, I hope you're listening. Any of us guilty of our own perfectionism? Are we reading this? If you really could have done it on your own, why did Jesus come? Why did he die? If Christ as example and guide was supposed to be sufficient, then why did he also come as Savior and Redeemer? He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Remember that taunt at the cross? Oh yeah, he didn't have to come to save others. He really could have saved himself. Well, that would have been true if we could have saved ourselves as well. If we could have saved ourselves from the consequences of broken law. We just can't. We know ourselves better than that. Galatians 2, at least the way it ends, is some profound doctrine. Again, it is a preview of what he will teach at length to the Romans. But to see this as some a kind of an initial doctrinal foray into this territory and Paul trying to come to grips with why why won't Peter eat with maybe he's thinking maybe it's not a, it's not a big deal. Am I blowing this out of proportion? Well maybe a little. I mean doing it publicly and withstanding him to his face and calling him a hypocrite. I mean, yeah that was a little okay. Calm down, Paul. <laughs> Quit throwing stones. But actually, theologically, oh, this is serious. 
why? What, what's, the, what's so wrong about going back in the Jewish direction? What's the danger of lean? If I'm going to err, which side do I err on? What's the danger of erring on the side of justice? And the more he thought about it, this is what came forth. It's incredible what he's just taught us. He then builds on that in chapter 3 with another incredible metaphor. As he's trying to both honor the law on behalf of the Jewish side of things and his own Jewish past, but also recognize the insufficiency of the law. This is a balancing act. And oh, Paul has, has a six-pack of rock-solid abs. He's flexing every muscle to try to balance this tightrope to stay in the Goldilocks zone. How does he do it? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He starts with some strong language. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Now, I, it's a strange way to start this chapter, but I actually love that phrase. There have been times <laughs> when my kids were little, I would just look at them and shake my head lamenting and just say to them, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And they'd look at me confused, like, what are you talking about, Dad? Like, oh, well, sounds like we need some historical context from the book of Galatians. It's like, forget it, I'm going to go out and play. Okay, well, maybe when you're older. For us older folks, what does he mean by calling them out? Foolish. And asking about bewitching, that's an interesting phrase. To bewitch seems to be that some kind, you're under a spell. And what Paul is getting at here, it's like you Galatians that are being drawn back to the legalistic side, coaxed away from the covenant in Christ, and convinced that your only hope is to live the Jewish law, get, get circumcised, live the, everything from ceremonial to ritual to moral to the, the whole thing. What kind of spell are you under? that has convinced you that the cross of Christ is insufficient for your sins? Who has woven this magic web that is entangling you, ensnaring you, bringing you back to some sense that Christ's grace is not sufficient for you? Think about how often that's been said in Scripture. My grace is sufficient. I can do this. I can make you holy. If you'll come unto me, if you'll trust me, instead of keep trusting in the arm of flesh, and no, I just need one more try, and I'll be able to pull this off perfectly. Just weld the link again. Bring the welding torch. No. Who is casting that evil spell on you? Who has bewitched you to think, to get you to think that you can do this on your own? You can't. But you were never expected to. You were invited to come unto Christ and rely wholly upon the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. That's what, those were, the, were Lehi's words to Jacob. To Jacob who was often over-anxious and overly concerned about his standing before God. No wonder it's to him, it's as if Lehi is saying to Jacob, Who's bewitched you, son? Who is telling you you have to be perfect right now and that there's no 
There's no opportunity to learn from your mistakes along the way. Who, who convinced you that a single misstep spelled game over? Because that's not the truth of God. Can we break the spell, son? By seeing the love and grace of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to break the spell. He's trying to free the Galatians from their bewitching. In verse 2, he says, This only would I learn of you. So let me ask this one question. If you can respond, maybe this realization will help break the spell. This only. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Think about that. Let that sink into the soul. What's your greatest source of spirit? Of really feeling the presence of God, the breath of God being breathed into you. Paul's going to talk about the Spirit a lot in the book of Galatians. Here is this first mention. What's the best way for you to access that Spirit of God? Has it been the law? Especially if you've been living it in a legalistic way? I'm not saying that, there's, that, that, oh, that disobedience leads to the Spirit. Not far from it. He's going to, God forbid, right? And Paul's going to get more on that in a moment. But my worry is, if it's just a bunch of legalistic box checking, is that really what invites the Holy Ghost? There's a certain life to live. It's discipleship. There is a law to be followed, but it's the law of grace and the law of faith. There's a lot to do as active Latter-day Saints, as true disciples of Jesus Christ. I just pray that doing it in the Lord's way invites the Spirit in a way that doing it the world's way just can't. Have you ever been so caught up in expectation and am I living up to to what everyone else is expecting of me and am I doing it right and and have I checked every box in the way I should that it just sucks the life out of the life you're living? It takes away all joy out of your discipleship. All you feel is anxiety and you don't feel the peace that passeth all understanding. To me, it's fascinating that there are a lot of people out there that are living the gospel without feeling its fruits. And they're doing spiritual things without ever feeling the Spirit. I worry about that. It's what Elder Anderson, Wilfred Anderson, taught years ago about the music of the gospel versus the dance steps. And here they are doing all the dance steps, but they can't hear the music. And so what is it that brings the music into your ears? What is it that brings the Spirit into your heart? Is it some kind of legalistic compliance and checking every box? Oh, if that's your attitude, then yeah, it's probably driven by anxiety. Whereas if... I mean, you, what, the fascinating thing, you can be doing the same things, but with pure motives and sincere, righteous desires, and without all that anxiety that is drowning out the Spirit. Do it in the right way and the Spirit comes rushing in. There's a peace. There's a, there's a connection with heaven that's absolutely beautiful. It's be still and know that I am God. It's allowing the wind to blow where it listeth and you can feel that wind, that heavenly breath, that Spirit. There's just a, call, a calm commitment, walking a peaceful path. 
It's, it's a beautiful approach to keeping the commandments of God. A beautiful approach to coming unto Christ. And that's what Paul is wondering. I just want to ask you that one thing and have you sit with it and think. As you're pondering which path to take, now that you've rebuilt the one that we tried to destroy, if you're caught between the two all over again, overly concerned with the tails of that coin and not yet fully convinced of the heads of this other one, just think about the Holy Ghost and which path helps you gain a deeper connection with the Spirit of God. Paul starts to answer his own question a little bit in the next verse. Are ye so foolish? Again, you foolish Galatians. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? You started taking door number two. You started walking the path of peace. Having begun there, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? I mean, retreating from that second path? And going back to the first one, is that really going to perfect you? Is, are you really going to be able to reforge all your broken links? Really? He asks again, have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? I mean, it's not too late yet for you to make up your mind and follow the right path. It's not yet in vain. But will it be? All these internal changes you've made, this acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Will it mean anything? Does it matter at all? Please, just think, what does a better job of changing you, softening your heart? Grace or law? Box-checking obedience? Or agency-induced faith? Choice is yours. Verse 5 and 6. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Ooh, with that, we get a preview of Romans chapter 4, where Paul brought in Abraham as witness for the defense and the defense of the path of faith, where Abraham could say, oh, I was intent on doing works. I'm going to sacrifice my son because God told me to. But then when he told me not to, and then blessed me as if I had? I mean, I was confused. It's like, really? How's that going to work? I didn't actually do it. I didn't perform the work. Oh, I know. I didn't expect you to. But you exhibited the faith. And that's all I asked for. The willingness to do. And because that was there, I counted it. I accounted it unto you for righteousness. I'll do the same for everyone else. Since you're <laughs> incapable of checking every box, if you place faith in Christ and a desire to be changed by Him, transformed in Him, it's as if every box were checked. Actually, it is. He's the one who checked them. Okay? And He'll keep working in you and on you to make you into someone like Him without any boxes needed. Okay? Hold on to that example. And then he'll keep building on the example of Abraham. Verse 7 through 9. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And that's the family resemblance we're looking for. Okay, Your faith, wow, reminds me of Abraham. You must be one of his kids, one of his descendants. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. 
So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, Paul just took you on a whirlwind tour of some Old Testament scripture that he saw as foreseeing glorious realities yet to come. When Paul took that verse, I mean, famous, this is the root of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We've talked about that before as a beautiful contrary between exclusivity and inclusivity. I'm choosing you, Abraham, you and your seed. That's exclusivity. But through that seed, I want the whole world to be blessed. That's radical inclusivity, okay? A chosen people to go out and choose everyone else. Well, what will that choice be based on? As Paul reads it, it's going to be based on faith. Abrahamic faith. I mean, we can talk about Abrahamic obedience, because he showed that too. And James is going to build on that. But please don't lose sight of Abrahamic faith. Because it's faith. If you want to be part of the Abrahamic covenant, then please develop Abrahamic faith. Hope against hope. Faith in him who made the promise. Faith in the face of despair, when it seems like the promises aren't being fulfilled, and yet you trust that they will be. And sure enough, Isaac is eventually born a child of promise. Wow, that is Abrahamic faith. And since Sarah is not one whit behind, it's Sarah faith. Is that the right adjective? Abrahamic is easier. Sarah-ic, I don't know. Sarah-like faith, how's that? Hold on to that as well. That If you can exercise that level of trust in God, then welcome to the family. <laughs> you, you resemble them in the ways that matter most. There's, there's not this, there doesn't need to be a literal family tree. That's just legalistic anyway. It's a symbolic adoption into the family because you have as much faith as they do. Welcome home. Now he's going to build on that example of Abraham and Sarah at length later in the letter. But for now, verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, and here he's going to quote Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. And yikes, there's a death penalty. There's a death sentence for you. Of course I'm cursed. The law demands perfection. The law is unbending. And if I don't do everything right, the way he phrases it here, if I don't continue in all things, we're talking not just endure to the end, but be perfect to the end. And if I can't pull that off, then, yeah, guilty is charged. I am cursed. But, Paul continues, that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. And it's evident for a couple of reasons. One, well, just look around. And nobody's living the law perfectly. I've heard it joked that the one Christian doctrine that is empirically provable is the depravity of man. <laughs> the fall of humanity. We're all broken, okay, and can't seem to fix ourselves. Well, so that's one piece that makes it evident that no man's going to be justified by the law. Here's another piece of evidence. Paul says, for the just shall live by faith. And there he's quoting Habakkuk, just like he'll do in the book of Romans. That's an Old Testament scripture that feels more New Testament than Old Testament, at least if we don't know our Old Testament very well. <laughs> But to realize that if you want to be just, it's going to be faith that gets you there. You're going to be just by faith in justice personified, and that's Jesus. 
It's Christ's perfection that will end up perfecting you. You will be perfected in him, as Moroni will say. And so what Paul is trying to get at here, you're not going to make it by the law. You can't live it perfectly and continue in all things for all time. Nope. So burn that bridge. Let it go. Don't rebuild it. After all, the just shall live by faith. It's the only hope we've got. And the law, he goes on, is not of faith. It's the, the different path. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. That's what the law demands. You're going to do it. You're going to live in it. You're going to continue in it. You're not going to break any links in your chain. You're going to pull this off. You better. It's your only hope. Ooh, then I have no hope. Exactly, Paul says. That's why you've got to come into Christ. It's the only, only chance you've got. Exercise faith in him. Leave the path of law. Leave it behind. You're not missing anything. Embrace the path of grace. Verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Now this is Paul. You're going to see a lot of this in Galatians. Paul... <laughs> Oh, flexing his literary muscles and this, these beautiful word plays that he's so famous for. Well, he'll take a word and then use it in a more ironic sense. Elder Maxwell was famous for this as well. Elder Maxwell was our modern-day Paul. And yeah, sometimes it can be confusing because of the repetition of words used in different senses. But amazing how it sticks in the head or allows you to just kind of play with the language until you see, oh, that's what he was saying. That's, that's brilliant. Well, what's Paul saying here? Let's talk about curse. The law cursed you because you couldn't live it perfectly. Well, fine. Guess what? Christ embraced the curse. He took the curse upon himself. When he says it this way, he hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written. And now he's going to go back into his Old Testament bag and pull out a verse from Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Hmm. Now, that's an interesting Old Testament message. That if you're going to hang someone, a public execution, that, that, well, there was a reason for that. And they are cursed. It's become painfully obvious they deserve some kind of capital punishment. Well, Jesus was crucified. If that's not hanging from a tree, hmm, symbolically, I don't know what it is. But if Christ was willing to die like that, remember how often Paul had to push back against the Jewish side that thought, oh, it's just, it's a scandal. It's foolishness. There's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah. Look at how he died. Not only did he not save us from Rome, but Rome ended up destroying him, killing him, crucifying him. And read your Deuteronomy. Rome cursed Christ in crucifying him. Now, Paul takes that, that complaint, takes that doubt, and turns it into an object of faith. Yeah, I, you're right. Jesus was crucified. And yeah, I know that verse in Deuteronomy as well. Cursed if you hang on a tree. Well, I'll, I'll take that. Because Christ took it too. He took the curse so he could overcome it. He faced death and succumbed to it so he could conquer it from within. He 
took upon himself all our sins, descended below all things so he could rise above all things. That's that's what the atonement was. That's what the condescension was for. And so don't think of his crucifixion as a disqualification. He had to take the curse so he could break it. You understand? Galatians? It's amazing what, he's, what Paul is teaching here. So don't let the crucifixion be a, a, a deal breaker. No, it was a game changer. It was part of the plan. And then he goes on, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's why he had to do all of this. So that somehow, and, and here's Paul starting to weave together some various strands into, of his argument. We saw him mention Abraham, and he mentions him again here. There's something about the blessing of Abraham, and it's got to go to the Gentiles as well. Hmm. So there's something about Christ's condescension, his incarnation, his atonement and crucifixion and resurrection. The part Jesus played in the plan has something to do with connecting the blessings of Abraham to all the families of the earth, including the Gentile families. The Gentile families that didn't grow up in a Jewish family, and so they didn't get circumcised, and they didn't know all of that part of the Abrahamic covenant. But somehow they're still going to tap into the Abrahamic blessings, even though they weren't required to participate in the token, the original token of the Abrahamic covenant. No, there's something bigger going on here. So, how does Jesus bridge that gap? That's what Paul's about to explain. Verse 15, brethren... I speak after the manner of men. Or we might say, let me use a man-made kind of mortal analogy. Let me use an example from everyday life so I can speak after the manner of men. Something that you'll get. This is as close as Paul can get to a parable. Jesus was a great storyteller. Paul is a little too, oh, intellectual for that. (laughs) And so, but, but let me do my best to draw upon some kind of analogy that might be helpful in explaining this. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm describing. Though it be but a man's covenant, so picture some kind of man-made, man-to-man agreement. Picture some kind of contract that would hold up in a human court of law. Okay, you with me? Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, so everybody, both parties signed on the dotted line, They had it signed, sealed, notarized, stamped, I mean, put in triplicate, whatever it is. If it's been confirmed, then what what can you say about this contract? Well, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. You can't change things after it's been signed and sealed, okay? And again, that's just a man-made covenant. What about a divine one? If you can't break or change or get out of a man-to-man covenant, agreement. How about a human-to-God agreement? Uh, What we call a covenant. Yeah, kind of like the Abrahamic covenant. How do you do that? Okay. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, Paul says. And he saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, singular. And why is he making such a big deal of the plural or singular? We'll look at his last phrase. It's to thy seed, singular, which is Christ, who is as singular a Savior as you could imagine. Now, Paul, it's interesting what he's doing here. Now, he, I'm sure he knows that seed is a noun that can be both 
plural and singular at the same time. It's like mouse or moose or fish or things like that. It's seed. And so the seed of Abraham, you will have seed like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. That's obviously plural seed, right? Innumerable seed. Well, how do you get the plural seed down to a singular seed? Hmm. That's what Paul is playing with. And ingeniously, he focuses on the fact that, well, let's make that singular noun truly a singular noun. And when I say seed of Abraham, I'm no longer thinking stars and sand. I'm thinking Savior. The greatest descendant of Father Abraham is the Son of our Father in heaven. It's Jesus Christ himself. He is the seed, singular, of Abraham. And no wonder when, when the Lord says to Abraham, in thee, Abraham, and in thy seed, Jesus, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You get, you get it? It's amazing, mind-blowing what Paul is saying there. Because of Jesus Christ, he will bridge the gap from Abraham to every non-Abrahamic descendant out there. He will bridge the gap from Jew to Gentile. Christ is the bridge across that chasm. And he's our only hope. He's the Gentiles' only hope. He was Abraham's only hope, too. You, you with me? To me, it actually changes, I hope, our view of the gathering of Israel. Because if we're thinking only in the plural form, in the seed of, uh, because of the seed of Abraham, everyone's got to be blessed. And like, wow, I'm the seed of Abraham. That's the oath and covenant of the priesthood. I am part of Abraham's family. That's one of my great identities as a child of the covenant. It's up to me. I'm a star. I'm a, I'm a sand. And it's up to me to make sure that every family on earth is blessed. So yeah, I'm going to preach the gospel and be a missionary. Yeah, I'm going to go redeem the dead at the temple. Yeah, I'm going to perfect the saints and try to help everyone around me. I've got, this is the family business, as we've said before. I'm a seed of Abraham. Now that's all true. Hold to it. Paul would back you up. But thanks to Paul's ingenious literary work here, I think we can purify our approach. And it's not about me blessing everyone as the seed of Abraham. No, it's about me pointing people to Christ. The capital S, singular seed of Abraham. Temple work is about connecting people to Jesus, who didn't have the chance to be quite so connected to him in this life. Missionary work is about bringing people unto Christ. Perfecting the saints is about helping strengthen people's covenant commitment to Christ. It's all him. Start to finish, top to bottom. He's the bridge. He's the seed. If you think about that, the first messianic prophecy in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman and the serpent, yeah, they're not going to get along very well. There will be enmity between thee and the seed of the woman. Oh, is that seed singular too? Yes. No one qualifies as seed of woman, independent of mortal man, quite like Jesus. Right? So Paul's building on the same. It, it's amazing what he's doing here. Okay? Paul, thank you for your genius. He continues in verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant, 
And remember, he was using man-made contracts as his, as his mortal analogy. Okay, so let's, let's talk about that. That the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, it cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So with that, let's go back to that analogy of a legal contract. What he just said in his analogy is that legal contracts can't be changed after everybody's signed on the dotted line. I mean, I'm, there might be ways, but you've got to get back together and the judge has to sign off on things and it has to be legal start to finish because the original contract was legally binding. So you, you can't just switch it around halfway through without both parties being totally in on things. You with me? So here, what Paul, this is interesting history and chronology. What Paul's getting at in 17 and 18 is, okay, if that makes sense in a court of law, now let's come to the court of Christ. And what was the, ori uh, the original covenant? It was with Abraham. Now think about this. 430 years later, Paul says, is when Moses showed up. Or more specifically, it's when the law of Moses showed up. But is the law of Moses, I mean, the way people are living it these days, it sure seems like it's an attempt to disannul or change the original contract, the Abrahamic covenant itself. In short, what Paul is saying is, which came first, Abraham or Moses? Uh, let me think, Old Testament, okay, Abraham, Moses was Exodus, Abraham was Genesis. Oh, Gen okay. Abraham, Abraham came first. Good. Next question. Which came first, the law of Moses or the covenant with Abraham? And they're like, well, duh, if Abraham became before Moses, then the covenant came before the law. Exactly. And if the covenant came first, if it's the initial contract, then guess what? The law of Moses cannot disannul. It cannot change that initial covenant. It would end up breaking things. That doesn't work. Okay, so really what we're after is not obedience to the law of Moses, it's obedience to the covenant of Abraham. That's the initial contract. And so you, you, all of you Jewish Jews or Jewish Christians, Judaizers, uh, whatever, you're, I'm grateful you're looking back for precedent and, and promise. You just didn't look back far enough. You think what we're doing in the gospel of Jesus Christ is disannulling the law of Moses. Ah, what I'm pushing is that the way you're approaching the law of Moses is actually disannulling the covenant with Abraham. What the gospel of Jesus Christ is doing is tying us back into the covenant of Abraham because Jesus is that bridge that brings us back to him. Jesus is the seed of Abraham by which all the families of the earth will be blessed. You get this? I mean, it's really fascinating what the, the argument, the logic behind what he's trying to explain to these Galatian saints. Going back to the law of Moses is not going back far enough. If you want to be traditionalists and primitivists and conservatives, fantastic. But find it rooted in Abraham, not in Moses. Like I said, this might sometimes feel like a new covenant. But it's the new and everlasting covenant. In a way, Paul is saying, 
Abraham was a good Christian long before he was a good Jew. There was no such thing as Judaism yet. There's Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Judah. And that's where we'd see our, our family tree branch off. But if we're trying to get back to the trunk, oh yeah, be Abrahamic more than Jewish. And rest in that promise. And the promise is Christ. Okay, Grace. Bless every, fa every family on earth through that. But then verse 19, Paul has a question. And it's actually the people's question. He says, wherefore then serveth the law? And can you picture him reading their mind? It's like, wait, wait, wait. If, if Moses is getting in the way of the Abrahamic covenant, is that what you're saying? Then why did, it came from God, didn't it? Uh, why would he disannul his own prior promise? What's the point of the law then if it got in the way? Well, important question. And it's, it lies at the root of the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. It lies at the root between Old Testament and New Testament. And how do you bridge the gap? Why did Christ come, not just in the New Testament, but why did he reveal the law in the Old? How do these come together? Great question. And here's Paul's answer. It was added... It as in the law, it was added because of transgressions till the seed, and that's singular, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. I mean, ultimately, that promise was made to Christ. You will be able to come and atone and redeem. You will save your people. Jesus is the promise, but he also received that promise. He is God's word made flesh. And when God gave his word, he gave it to the word himself. Okay. So the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that passage. Let's take it one by one. Let's, at the end, this idea of mediation the idea of mediators, you're never a mediator of one, but God is one. So where's the mediation here? I wonder if Paul is suggesting... The, the, the very idea of a mediator suggests two parties opposed to one another. And so you needed a middleman or middlewoman. You needed someone to stand between them and kind of try to work toward reconciliation. Remember that ministry of reconciliation we saw in Corinthians? Well, that's Jesus for you. And he's come to reconcile these two opposing parties, God and humanity. But then again, is it God that needs to be reconciled? Because he's one. And he's the perfect one. He's the source of the covenant. He keeps his part of it to perfection. He doesn't need his mind changed. <laughs> he's in need of no reconciliation. But we need it desperately. We've fallen short. We've turned God into our enemy. Though he doesn't, that's not who he is. And so he sends Jesus. Christ comes to be that mediator. It's almost like he's trying, party of one, a single individual that needs a mediation. Uh, it's, it's kind of like in the book of Enos when it says that his wrestle was before God. It wasn't with him. God didn't have to be wrestled. He didn't have his arm twisted. It's like, no, I'm here to bless. I'm here to forgive. But it took Enos to wrestle with himself. 
And there's Jesus trying to mediate the natural man in Enos with the spiritual man in Enos and try to help. It's going to be okay. I'll transform you. That's why God sent me in the first place. I'm his promise. I'm that seed. But back to the earlier in the verse when it says, when Paul is addressing the actual question, then what do we do with the law? And he does this to the Roman saints as well. Why? What? So the law was no, was, had no point? Oh, God forbid. Although it's the law that turns us into sin. No, God is not the minister of sin. God forbid. So why do we have it then? Why this additional covenant if the first one is the one that was supposed to stay strong? Ooh, well, it was in order to keep the first one strong. In fact, it was to strengthen the first one that the second one was given. That it was added. Now, hold on to that verb. The law of Moses was added to the Abrahamic covenant. It was, and if the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant with Christ, the law of Moses was added to the gospel? Wait a minute. If we're doing arithmetic here, I would assume this was subtraction. Because the law of Moses is a lower bar. Didn't God lower the bar because the people couldn't pass it? They couldn't clear it? I mean, that's what he hints at. It was added because of transgressions. I mean, uh, we saw this when we studied Exodus last, last year. That on the first set of tablets, it was the good stuff. It was the higher law. It was Melchizedek rather than Aaronic. It was temple rather than tabernacle. It was God rather than mere angels. But the people couldn't handle it. They were out dancing around a golden calf. So Moses broke those commandments because that's exactly what they had done. They'd broken that higher covenant. And he went back up, not just to ask God to print out another copy, but rather, can you give them something a little more livable based on their level of living? That's going to be tough to get them, to get Egypt out of them. Getting them out of Egypt was a piece of cake compared to the other. So it's almost like, you know how they were unwilling to climb Mount Sinai? Picture like uh, elevation sickness. And there's not enough oxygen up there. And as I started to climb, I just started hyperventilating. I knew I couldn't make it. Okay? Or it's just too steep and my, my, my quads just, they've kind of atrophied over the years. Oh, guilty as charged. Okay, fine. You can't climb the heights of Sinai. You can't make it to the celestial level of living. You can't keep the full high holy version of the covenant. Okay, what are we going to do? I cannot lower the bar. I cannot just say, okay, fine, good enough. I'll get you in. No, that's mercy robbing justice. And it can't. But mercy can, can allow people to live into justice and live up to justice eventually. So let's add something lower. We're not subtracting from the law we are, or from the covenant. We are adding to the covenant Something that comes in on a lower level. Now, the analogy I always use with my students is a stepping stool. I actually used to do this with my seminary kids all the time. It was fun. I would, have, I would bring somebody up to the front and say, okay, I'd clear out some space around. There was always a desk at the front of the, of the room, a table. And I'd say, can you step up from the floor up to this table? I mean, it's all, almost three feet off the ground. Can you do that? 
And they're like, of course. And they'd either jump up or they just put one foot up and then kind of spring up. I mean, these are teenagers. They can handle it. But then I said, oh, no, 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 no. You cheated. Like, what are you talking about? I said, you pushed off the ground. I don't want you to do that. Under your own strength, I want you to be able to lift yourself, not push yourself, but honestly, lift, lift yourself off the ground to the level of the table. Okay? Basically, what I'm asking for is a one-legged, deep knee, full body squat. Okay? Stand here. I'm going to have all, you got like 30 other witnesses. They are going to be laser focused on the bottom foot to see if you push off at all. They're going to call you out if you do. Put your foot up here on the, on the table and then kind of lean over so that your foot's now, there's no weight resting on the ground and then lift yourself. Deep knee bend, full body squat on one leg. Go for it. I think in all the years I did that, only one student was ever able to pull that off. And they had quads of steel, okay? Everyone else, they always got caught. And the class was so excited to catch them. It's like, no, 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 I saw, you pushed, you pushed off. And then they were like, okay, fine, I can't do it. I don't have the physical strength to go from a telestial level to a celestial level. I just can't do it. I said, okay, well, I can't lower the, the table. Okay, I can't lower the, the, the bar. But I... So there's no subtraction involved, but I can add something and I would run over to the piano and grab the piano bench and pull it over right next to the table and say, now that I've added something lower, a stepping stool of sorts, now that I've added that, now do you think you could do it? You, you can take two steps now. And now, since it's not quite so high, they put that leg up on the piano bench and then lean over it and get their leg off so that it's obvious they're not pushing. And it's kind of a half leg or a half deep knee bend squat, and that's much more doable. And now that they're on the level of the piano bench, it's an easy one to then do the second step and get up to the table. You with me? And the students were like, yeah. I was like, okay, now you understand the law of Moses. That from the get-go, the Lord was taking them from a telestial life in Egypt, wanting to get them to a celestial life in the promised land. But since they couldn't do it, and we can't blame them for that. We couldn't either. The Lord gave them, he added the law of Moses as a stepping stool to help them at least live terrestrially. And once you get used to that elevation, I'll give you 1,200 years to acclimatize. And then when Jesus comes, he'll say, are you ready for the next step? Because the law says don't kill. But I say, don't get angry. The law says don't commit adultery. But I say, don't look with lust. And those antitheses we studied in the Sermon on the Mount is just the second step. You've lifted to the law of Moses. Now lift to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was the original covenant I made to Abraham before Moses ever stepped foot on the scene. You with me? With that in mind, oh, there is a JST, by the way. It's interesting. Uh, in all this talk of mediators and so on, the JST of verse 19 and 20, wherefore then the law was added because of transgressions, just like we talked about, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made in the law given to Moses. So hmm, even in the law of Moses, there, was, there were all these hints and prophecies and promises. Jesus will come. 
I'm adding, and he will yet add more to help you get up to the full level of living God expects of you. Okay? So that seed will come, promises was made, in the law given to Moses, who was ordained by the hand of angels to be a mediator of this first covenant, the law. So that was Moses' role. Okay? Ordained to be that first mediator, first covenant. Now, this mediator was not a mediator of the new covenant. No, Moses couldn't do that. But there is one mediator of the new covenant who is Christ, as it is written in the law concerning the promises made to Abraham and his seed. Now, Christ is the mediator of life, for this is the promise which God made unto Abraham. If you remember last year when we met Joshua, and remember Jesus and Joshua, it's the same Hebrew name, and we realize that Joshua is such a beautiful symbol of Jesus because Moses was only able to get them close to the promised land, right at its edge, right to the Jordan. But he couldn't get them in. Only Joshua could do that. And so if Moses personifies the law and Joshua personifies Jesus, oh, okay. Yeah, no wonder we needed Moses as a first mediator get up to the piano bench, and then Jesus, as a second mediator, get all the way up to the top of the table. Then verse 21, let me ask the question all over again. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. There's his bumper bowling. There's don't overswing the pendulum. Don't overcorrect while we're correcting. So no, the law was important. The law was essential, in fact. The law wasn't against God's promises. It helped God keep his promises. So yeah, God forbid that you think along those lines. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But, unfortunately, the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now, the way Paul is answering that question is, again, genius. Is the law against the promises of God? Of course not. Why would you say that? I mean, think about it this way. If we had been able to keep the law perfectly, the law would have saved us. In fact, isn't that how Jesus was saved? We talked about this in our discussion of Romans as well. But here we are, again, he's practicing. He's getting up to Roman speed with the Galatians. How was Jesus saved? Through grace? No. That's like him pulling him up by his, himself up by his bootstraps. You, you can't do that. Christ's atonement couldn't be self-serving. He couldn't save himself. That's why he had to live the law to perfection. That's why he had to be a sinless sacrifice. So that the law could make no demands of him. Instead, he could satisfy all the other demands of the law regarding us. Right? And so when Paul here is describing the law and defending the law, it's like, oh, no, no, the law would have saved you. It saved Jesus. Unfortunately, we're not Jesus. That's why the scriptures say that it concludes we're all under sin. That's where he said in, in Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as a result, that ship has sailed. The only person who could navigate it perfectly was Jesus. And for the rest of us, we crash on the rocks. So that's not an option. The law will not work for us. It is a dead end. It's almost like Jesus had to somehow navigate that path, door number one, path number one. Perfect obedience, legalistic. He made it. Somehow he got across. 
It's this rickety bridge and any misstep. It's this, these tiles on the floor and most of them have nothing to bear weight. But somehow he walked across Ginger. He navigated the minefield and it never blew up on him. And somebody had to do that so that from that side they could blaze a trail on the other path. Right? Somebody on that side had to have a, a chain that would hold so he could swing back across the chasm and pick us up. Again, I'm, I'm sorry if, if pick any of these metaphors that work for you, okay? But somebody had to make it so that the rest of us could, but we're not going to make it the same way he did. And so I'm not, I'm not saying anything against the law. Jesus was saved that way. It just won't work for us. So again, what's the point of the law? A, it's added because of transgression. It helps us get up to speed. B, it's what saved Jesus. So it needed to be there for him. And I'm not talking the law of Moses there. <laughs> I'm talking law in general. Strict obedience cannot make any mistakes. No mercy needed. No grace offered because none required. And then this, verse 23 to 25, includes a very famous phrase from Paul. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. It's like it, we were under its custody. It controlled things because nobody had broken out of it yet. No one had opened the way for this other possibility, this other path. No, nope, we were kept under the law. Shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. We had no idea what, all the good that was yet coming. I mean, we should have known. It was all prophesied. Okay? It's the old covenant that's going to be new someday since it's everlasting. But where did that leave the law? Verse 24, here's that famous line. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now this is a powerful analogy as well. I'm grateful he's speaking after the manner of man, because this man here can finally understand this. Oh, it's a schoolmaster. Oh, I get it. Schoolmaster, by the way, in Greek, this is coming from the word pedagogos. Can you hear pedagogy there? Which is our word for the study of teaching? Huh. So this is God using some really good pedagogy. Uh, he is trying to be a master teacher, and he's got a rough class. <laughs> uh, far from the, the caliber of my students. Uh, this, we, were, we were rough ones. And he looks at us and is like, golden calf? What are you thinking? Um, okay, fallen man or woman, they're going to need something to get them up to speed. They're going to they're need some really good curriculum. In fact, how about a personal tutor? You're going to need that. You're not going to be able to figure it out on your own. How about your own schoolmaster? Classroom of one. And it can work on you and point out places where you're still falling short. Because no, nothing does that quite like the law. If it demands perfection, then it's a measuring stick that we all fall short of. And it points out those places where we need improvement. In fact, this is kind of fun. Another way to translate that word schoolmaster is guardian. And another one is disciplinarian. In the ancient world, sometimes if you were rich enough and you were sending your child off to school and you were a little worried that your child wasn't very well behaved, you, if you had a slave, you would sometimes assign a slave to go to school with your child to make sure they were paying attention, 
You ever been threatened with that? It's like, I, I want your mom to come to class with you. Like, uh, no, I'll, I'll behave. But imagine some slave coming, uh, sitting there beside you in class and wrapping your knuckles or calling you out every time you misbehave. That is about as good a description of the law as I've ever seen. It's not just a, I mean, if we're well behaved, then I guess it can be a gentle teaching assistant, a kind TA. But if we are just not getting it, and we're not seeing where we're falling short, and it's like, why do I even need school? I'm fine. Okay, well, this servant is going to go with you. This disciplinarian will make sure you are being disciplined into real discipleship. And it's going to call you out every time you get distracted in class. Isn't that what the law did? All those years? All those boxes that we're checking, reminding us of, oh, I didn't do that, and I need to remember, and will we ever get to the point where we no longer need it? That's the hope. That's what the schoolmaster is for. But as he said, if it's a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ so that we can be justified by faith, so the law says, nope, zip it, shut your mouth, you cannot do it on your own. The disciplinarian comes and says, you're a lousy student, you're never going to figure this out, but let me help you learn. Let me introduce you to a kinder teacher, a more successful pedagogy. And once you have faith in that, and Christ begins to work within you and on you, transforming you, ooh, once that faith comes, you don't need a schoolmaster anymore. You don't need a disciplinarian. You're now a disciple, right? I remember once I finished all my coursework, I was talking to my, one of my professors that I'd had a, a semester or two before. He's like, hey, Jared, good to see you. Where, where are you at in the process? And I said, oh, I've finished all my coursework. And he just smiled and kind of beaming and said, oh, well, all you have left now is one test and one paper, piece of cake. And we both laughed because I knew that one test was my qualifying exams, which another professor told me, you'll never know more in your whole life than on the day you take your qualifying exams. I mean, you'll keep learning more, but you'll never have more stuffed in your head than that one day when you have to prove that you have mastered this field. Man, one test? Yeah, but what a test. And then one paper? Yeah, a book, a dissertation. <laughs> Hello. Like 400 pages later. I mean, it's crazy to think that. But it was kind of exciting to realize I'm getting close. And I remember after I finished my qualifying exams thinking, I never have to take another test for the rest of my life. I, judgment day will be my next exam. And then after the dissertation was finally done, it's like, I finished. It's over. And when I got to graduate, it's like, there's no more degrees after this. Free at last, free at last. And better than I no longer have to be tested, it's now I get to teach. And that was the, the purpose and the goal all along. That was the motivation to get through all that pain. <laughs> and so here, the schoolmaster served its purpose, but it's brought you unto Christ. And now that you're with him, no schoolmaster needed. Congratulations on graduating. 
into the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'll take it from here. And so this chapter ends. And this first half of our lesson, verse 26 through 29, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And yes, that's why God takes your education so seriously. You're his child. He wants you to grow up in him. He wants you to learn to live as he does. He wants, you to, be able, he wants to be able to trust you with his kingdom. So yeah, that requires discipline. Yes, you needed a schoolmaster. But he sent it to you in love. He added it to you because you needed it. But if you've come unto Christ, that's the real purpose of all of this. Paul goes on, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Or another way to say that is, you've been clothed in Christ. You could even say this, you've been endowed by Christ. Because to endow is to cover, to clothe. And so you've put him on. You're wearing Jesus. I mean, think about this. And again, this goes back to Romans chapter 6 about being buried in the baptismal water. Crucified with him. Buried with him. So you could rise with him. In fact, what's the first thing you're going to do if you were baptized? You're going to change your clothes when you get out. And what are you putting on? I have disrobed the natural man, and now I can cover myself in Christ's robes of righteousness. I'm wearing him. And as a result, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one. In Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Think about that. What a beautiful finale of this chapter. That why do we keep fighting over Jew and Gentile? Or expanding into other divisions? Who cares about male, female? Who cares about bond or free? We belong to Jesus. In fact, what did you wear when you got baptized? All white? Yeah, me too. What do you wear when you are endowed by Christ? Oh, I'm putting him on. And it's the same robes of righteousness. It's the same pure white. There's no distinctions in the baptismal font. There's no distinctions in the temple. We're finally one. Oh, Zion, indeed. One heart, one mind. Dwelling in righteousness. No poor among us. So who cares about gender differences? Who cares about racial or ethnic or religious differences? Who cares about class differences or any of the other mortal measuring sticks we use to divide ourselves from one another? At the end of the day, I'm Christian. I belong to him. And so does everyone else, even if they don't know it yet. There's oneness. There's breaking down the walls of separation. There's overcoming lesser identities that tend to divide by embracing a higher identity that tends to unite. That was President Nelson's hope recently when he spoke to the young single adults of the church. Which, and that age group is so caught up in, or so prone to, or so exposed to identity politics. And what's your group? And what about other groups? And us against them? And so on. And, and President Nelson just 
cut through it all and said, all those identities are fine. They may be important even, but the essential ones are at the top of the taxonomy. And what are you really? Before anything else is said and after everything else is said and done. Number one, you are a child of God. Number two, you are a child of the covenant. How's that for seed of Abraham, meant to bless the entire world? And you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Heirs according to the covenant. That's who we really are. And it's the family business we've been born or adopted into. I hope that we are seeing what Paul is trying to get across. I hope that when, all, when, when we come to understand Paul's message to the Galatians, we see it as, as his message to each of us, that we belong to Christ and we belong to God, and therefore we belong to one another. Turn to chapter 4 then and see where Paul goes from here. Because having established those identities, uh, having been whipped into shape at school with our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, having been disciplined into true discipleship, what does that mean for me? Where do I go from here? I'm starting to, you've, you're weaning me off the law and its legalism. Thank you for that. You're cautioning me against overcorrecting in either direction. You're helping me see the purpose of the law, but also the fact that through Jesus, hopefully the law has served that purpose. And I can come unto Christ and be made and be perfected in him. It's the only way perfection will ever come. So the remainder of Galatians, chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul is going to build on the foundation he's already laid. He's going to start by helping us again embrace that true identity as children of the covenant. Children of God, this is who we are. So notice chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And not just tutors and governors, you could say schoolmasters and disciplinarians and guardians and, and regents, if we're using you know, regal terms. If you're in a kingdom... And let's say that the king is, is nearing death, but the heir is too young to occupy the throne. They can't even lift themselves all the way up there. You're going to need a stepping stool added, right? Well, what's the king going to do? Well, the king's got to whip the crown prince into shape. Uh, he's going to send tutors and disciplinarians and guardians and schoolmasters and everything else. And if upon the king's death, the child is still not ready to assume the throne, then a regent is put in place. They know I'm not the king, I'm just the regent. I'm supposed to kind of bridge the gap between the old king and the up-and-coming king because they're not old enough to do it yet. And so I am a, a figurehead, I am leading in, in name only, and I'm trying to honor the wishes of the the king I served, and the king I am now serving, even though it sometimes looks like that king, that king is serving me. I mean, you ask the prince, and it's like, yeah, old so-and-so keeps calling the shots, even though I'm the one that's supposed to wear the crown. Well, you will. Your head hasn't, 
well, in some ways your head is already too big for it. But literally, it's not yet big enough to, to, to hold that crown, to occupy that throne. So for the meantime, I'm sorry if it feels like, like you're being told what to do. I'm sorry if I've given you a checklist of all of your responsibilities and I've laid out your schedule and told you all these things that you have to master. Oh, master. You get it? The day will come that you will rule. But since you're not yet ready for it, I guess something has to rule you. And that's the law, according to, to Paul. That's what it was trying to do. I mean, the way he puts it, if you're still a child, have not yet grown up in God, then yeah, it's going to feel like you're a servant, even though you're a son or daughter. You're, you're the heir, but you're, you're not ready for the inheritance. And I'm always fascinated to see those who, who are so angry about the, the strictness of the gospel. And if you're feeling its strictness, well, it probably needed to be strict. Elder, Elder Packer, excuse me, used to say that you can tell when a dog is ready to have the leash taken off when the leash sags, when it hangs, because that proves that the dog is willing to stay even closer to the master than it has to. If the, if the leash is taut, if it's, if it's straight line, then it's being pulled so hard by the dog that if you gave the dog the chance, it would be further away from you than what the leash allows. So again, wait till it starts to droop, and then you'll see, oh, the dog is okay being, staying close to me. Now no, no leash is needed. But for those who are struggling, those who feel restricted and get frustrated by how uh, demanding the church is, and I can't do anything I want to do, it's like, oh, then your desires have not yet been disciplined. Your heart hasn't yet been changed. You're, you want to be conformed to the world, which means you have not yet been transformed by Christ. So, yeah, it's going to feel a little restricted for now. It's going to feel like you've got the leash and it's going to hurt your neck because you're the one that keeps pulling against it. You're going to need some boxes to check and a list of, of chores to perform. You're gonna, it's going to feel like a servant. But please don't forget, you're the son. You're the daughter. The throne is yours once you're ready for it. So verse 3 through 5, building upon the analogy. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. This seems like an echo of what he said earlier about being cursed. And yeah, Christ took the curse and crowned himself with it. So he could come down and know what it feels like for the rest of us cursed individuals. He took the curse so he could break the curse and free us from it all. And here, this is more of the condescension of Christ. He, he's the Son of God, but He chose to become a servant, since that's what we sons feel like, as we're servants under the law. He was born of a woman. And how's that for mortal condescension? Babe in a manger? When it was king in heaven? 
It's amazing to see what Christ was willing to do. And all because God, the Father of mercies, sent him to do that. Okay? Made of a woman. Made under the law. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? I hope we know the answer to that one. Well, verse 6, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see the order there? Yeah, it might feel like you're a servant, but live into that servitude. Learn the discipline. And before you know it, you'll realize, oh, I was never a servant at all. I was a son or daughter from the very beginning. And if a child, then I get the inheritance. I am an heir of God through Christ. That almost seems too good to be true. Then how do I know that it is true? Well, be still. Look inward. Reach upward. And how do you feel about the title Father in heaven? Can you feel how accurate that is? Can you feel the reality of your relationship to the point that once we feel the spirit of the Son in us, it awakens within us the realization that we are all sons and daughters of God. It leaves us whispering, Abba, Papa. An intimate relationship. It's not just Eli. Remember we talked about this in Gethsemane and Calvary. Abba is Papa. Eli is my father. Eli is my God. And if Eli or Eli is the, is the distance, the, the infinite, then Abba is the intimate, so close. And if when we pray, I had a student say this once, I'm grateful for the these and the thous, but there are times I just need to use my own language to speak with God. There are times I need to call him Father, but times I need to call him Daddy. I need to be close. And in those times when the Spirit whispers, it's okay to call me that. I am your father, after all. I am your papa. Abba. And he responds. It's his favorite title. This is exactly what Paul built on when he wrote his letter to the Romans. Here again you see a preview of what he'll teach to the Roman saints. You remember this verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17? Such a beautiful passage. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's the servitude side of things. There's bondage. That's, that's fearing. But ye have received the spirit of adoption. That's child. Okay, That's son or daughter. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I think that Romans 8 is an even better version but I'm so moved by what Paul says here to the Galatians because it's the same truth. You're children of God. Dig deep and feel it. You'll know that about yourself. And therefore, you'll know what God is preparing you for. 
as Paul says it twice in different letters, Eliza R. Snow put it into poetry. And in that beautiful hymn, O My Father, O My Abba, in the second and third verse, listen to her rendition of what Paul has said. Yet oft times a secret something whispered, You're a stranger here. And I felt that I had wandered from a more exalted sphere. Again, there's something inside that tells me that. I had learned to call thee Father through thy spirit from on high. And again, that's how Paul says it exactly to the Galatians and to the Romans. There was something about this spiritual experience, this, this nudge to look upward and see a resemblance in the heavens. I learned that through this, the Spirit. I learned to call thee Father. I couldn't help myself. Abba is what came from the lips. But until the key of knowledge was restored, I knew not why. And thank heaven for that key of knowledge. Paul's been dropping hints for 2,000 years. But thanks for the restoration. That same new and everlasting covenant, it reminded us of our truest, deepest identity. And it left us with Abba on our lips. In verse 8 and 9, Paul then says, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods, it's like, how, how did that work? You didn't know him? The, the, the capital G, true God. So what did you end up doing instead? You went after lowercase g, false gods. It's like the Athenians, the, the, to the unknown God and this idol worship. Out of ignorance, I get it. But you didn't know the true God. But now, he says, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, that might be even better, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? That's a, that's a powerful phrase, weak and beggarly elements. Another way to translate that is weak and destitute principles. But that's what you're going back to? You'd rather be back in bondage? You finally ascended the throne and the crown feels too heavy? Like, I can't do this. I don't know if I'm doing it right. Nobody's telling me everything I'm supposed to do anymore. And, and I'm, I'm scared to death I'm going to do this wrong. So can I please go back to school? I need my tutor again. I need somebody rapping me on the knuckles and, and slapping me upside the head. I need somebody pointing out my every mistake. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Why do you want to go back to the tutor? You graduated why do you want a schoolmaster when <laughs> you're supposed to be a schoolmaster now yourself? You're supposed to be teaching others, reigning as a joint heir with Christ and an heir of God. To me, I'm fascinated the way Paul is trying to wean people off the old law that was so hard when, that's all, when that was all they had, but now seems comparatively easy. Compared to, compared to having full freedom to live up to divine expectations. Right? Interesting buyer's remorse here, but beggarly elements, destitute principles that won't get you where you need to go. I, I'll admit, up to this point, you have been sinning in ignorance. 
or maybe even trying to obey in ignorance, but the ignorance has passed. You know God, and you are known of God. So there's no going back. Destroy the ships, Cortez. We're staying in the promised land. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. At least I hope we've gotten to that point. I don't see many oh, young adults, or older adults for that matter, at Thanksgiving dinner begging the hosts, can I sit back at the, the little table again? <laughs> no, we, we graduate from the little table, and it's like, oh, okay, I got to sit at the B table now, finally. I don't see many of us go, wanting to go back to the old things once we've graduated from them. I don't, I don't see many teenagers wanting to drag mom and dad up to the pulpit with them on fast and testimony meeting, saying, whisper my testimony in my ear. <laughs> no. I want to be able to stand on my own two feet. I want to grow up in God. I think that's something within all of us. The same spirit that cries, Abba, Father, recognizing our sonhood and daughterhood also wants to grow up to be more like him. And that's what Paul is getting at. Well, verse 10 through 12, they're still not there. Ye observe days and months and times and years. You're still holding on to the Jewish calendar. Please just let it go. It, it's all right. You're not responsible for that anymore. We've graduated. I am afraid of you, he says. In a better translation, I am afraid for you. I fear for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Think about that coming from a missionary. Was all my work for nothing? All that work to convert you? All that work to convince you that the law really had been fulfilled in Christ? Was that for, for nothing? Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Now, what I think he's getting at there is... I'm just like you, a Jew by birth. But will you be like me, a Christian by choice? I was raised with the law, and I was more zealous toward than even you. But now I am zealous toward Jesus. I've been crucified with him, buried with him, risen with him, clothed in him. I'm different, and I want you to be different too. Until you get there, it's not hurting me. That's what he says at the end. You haven't injured me at all, but you're hurting yourself. There's a JST to all of that that teaches similar things. Brethren, I beseech you to be perfect as I am perfect. For I am persuaded as ye have a knowledge of me, ye have not injured me at all by your sayings. It's like if you really know who I am, yeah, nothing you say could hurt my feelings. I've got thick skin, believe me. But... I, I hope you can grow up a bit and be a little more like me, which means we're both being a little more like Jesus. Okay, to be as perfect, even to be perfect, even as I am perfect. Again, that's not sinless. That's not flawless. It's mature. It's fully developed. It's grown up. I, I'm not, I don't want to go back. I don't want to grow down and be a servant again. I've, I've realized who I am as a son of God, and I am growing up in him. In verse 13, he then says, Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And what he's reminding them of is, I mean, think back to that first mission of mine. As I came through Galatia, 
you, you sensed my infirmity. It was obvious. You knew about it. I, I don't know if he was sick. I don't know if he had some kind of physical illness or something that was going on in him. But they knew about it. And yet, you were fine. In fact, I was good enough to at least get, take the chance to preach the gospel to you. Some have wondered, maybe Paul didn't intend to spend much time in Galatia, but he got sick there and he decided, well, I'm here. I might as well preach the gospel. Okay, so through infirmity of the flesh, I preach the gospel to you. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And what I love about this is, I mean, as a return missionary myself, I can picture Puerto Ricans, the way they treated me, the way they loved me, despite my poor Spanish, despite my culture shock and my inability to teach them anything, this temptation of the flesh, and remember, temptation is better translated trial. So whatever he was going through, they were okay with it. They didn't look down on him. They didn't despise him. Like, man, if you were really a servant of God, wouldn't God kind of get you through this kind of stuff? You, you shouldn't have to suffer. No, they, they treated me like an angel. They treated me like as if Jesus himself was among them. Keep reading. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Oh, that's, that's stark. That's one thing to give you the clothes off your back, but to pluck your eye out and give it to someone who might be in need? Some have even suggested maybe that's a hint at what Paul was going through. Maybe the infirmity of the flesh was something sight-related. Remember the thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times to be removed and we wondered what, what could he be talking about? When we see him blinded on the road to Damascus and Ananias re restoring his sight, well, was it a permanent restoration? Was it a complete restoration? Was it only a symbolic restoration? I don't know. But some have wondered over the centuries, did Paul have eye problems? And when he was in Galatia, was it so obvious people were like, whoa, there's an infirmity of the flesh. But this is a servant of God. And we love God and we love him. He's introducing us to Christ. And man, it feels like Christ is right here with us. This is an angel among us. And if his eyes are causing him problems, man, I wish I could give you my own. You have given me spiritual sight. The least I could do is, <laughs> would be to give you physical sight in return. And that's how good they were. That's how converted they were. What happened, guys? Who hath bewitched you? Why are you sliding back when you had so much momentum moving forward? I have felt that about people I came to love in the mission field who gained testimonies. I knew it. And then slipped back into inactivity. I have felt that with former students and friends who may be struggling in their faith and you just look back to the old days when you were mission companions or when you were youth together or just growing up in the same home with the same faith and testimony. And it's, man, I, you would have done anything for me. Now I'll do anything for you. I just want you to see through my eyes. Can I pluck them out and give them to you? When will you see? Why have you been spiritually blinded? Verse 16 Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
I hope you don't feel that way. We were friends before. Willing to give one another anything we could. And I still feel that way toward you. I, do you feel that way toward me? Are you perceiving me as an enemy because I'm telling you the truth? And yes, sometimes the truth hurts, pricks the heart. I didn't mean to cut it. He says they, and by they he could mean false teachers, false preachers, uh, false apostles like we saw in Corinth, these super apostles, these, these missionaries that are full of themselves. Is it Judaizers? Just any, whoever the they is, they zealously affect you but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. Oh, who's affecting whom and in what way? Paul, as a true apostle, I was trying to affect you toward goodness, toward righteousness, toward faith in Christ's grace. These zealous people are trying to affect you toward something else. But how are they leaving you, better or worse? They just want you on their side. Misery loves company, strength in numbers, whatever it is. They're just zealously working toward you. But be, be careful about that kind of zeal. Believe me, I used to have it myself. Now I have a, the right kind of zeal in the right cause. But speaking of zeal, Paul says, it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. Again, when I was there, physically present, you were ready to physically pull out your eyes and give them to me. You were so zealous for truth. Now there's some other zealots that are trying to get you zealous for falsehood. Be careful. If Zeal is wonderful. As long, I mean, momentum is great. I hope you have the right direction. The Lord saw that in me and picked me up and turned me around. So I'd run in, the, in, the, in his way. And I've been running ever since. It is good to be zealously affected always. It's a great phrase. In section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which I quoted a bunch from already, we see the Lord's final dispensation equivalent of that phrase. To Paul, it was, be zealously affected always in a good thing. Section 58, it was to be anxiously engaged in a good cause. There's still a good cause to be engaged in. Let's, get, let's be anxiously engaged in it. Not anxious about being engaged. Simply anxiously engaged. Verse 19 and 20 then, and these are beautiful words of love, terms of endearment. He calls them my little children. And again, if you're little, you might still need a schoolmaster. If you're little, you might still have to be treated like a servant sometimes. I'm just trying to prepare you for the throne. So my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. You catch that last phrase? I'm, I'm worried about you. I don't know what's happened since I was there in Galatia last. There seems to be some sliding backwards, and it concerns me. There seems to be some foolishness, some bewitching. Are you under some strange magic spell? under the Judaizing influence. I'm worried. And so what am, I, what am I doing for you little children that I love so much? Here I am. His, his analogy is powerful. I travail in birth again. 
here's Paul the Apostle taking the part of the mother hen. The maternal imagery, trying to give birth to a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's labor for you, uh, together, uh, complete with labor pains. And so think of this, this is a powerful metaphor. And what he's describing is, I've already gone through labor for you. All the pain of labor and delivery I went through, and to, to produce what? A true convert. And yet, what's happened in the meantime? Foolish Galatians wanting to slide back. If we're sticking with a marriage, or with a maternal metaphor, you're trying to go back into the womb. I mean, you remember when Nicodemus was asking Jesus, like, whoa, whoa, whoa born again? Uh, Mom's not going to like that. How can you ever re-enter the womb? Well, it looks like the Galatians figured out how. And it's not just a matter of becoming children again. I want to go back into embryo. I want to go, it was, at least it was easy in the womb. That umbilical cord, I sometimes felt restrictive. It wrapped around me, but man, it kept the food flowing. I didn't have to do a thing to provide for myself. And was it easier in that old Mosaic law to check the boxes and say I was done? Is that really where you want to go? Back into the womb? There's buyer's remorse for birth itself. And then when he says next, do, do I really have to travail in birth all over again until Christ be formed in you? Again, his wordplay is fascinating. Because when you're in the womb, the, the mother is forming you. Well, now he's asking them, you be the mother. What's forming in you? Is it a Christian consciousness? Is it a sense of who you're supposed to grow up to become? Is it the Spirit whispering that Abba is the right thing to call God above? I can't imagine. Having seen my wife go through labor and delivery five times for our children, I can't imagine how frustrated she would be if one of the kids <laughs> said, uh, can, I make you, can I put you through all of that all over again? Huh? Oh no, we, we already did that. And yet to try to recreate a conversion in someone that was already converted once, that's hard work. Why do you think most missionaries spend the bulk of their time seeking new converts instead of reactivating old ones. Part of it feels easier. Part of it feels like they are, those others already had their chance. Oh, it is equally essential to reactivate the inactive as it is to convert the unconverted. But in some ways, isn't that what we're doing both times, converting the unconverted? We have to help them form Christ within even if it means going through another pregnancy. It's worth it if they can be born again and stay out of the womb this time. Keep growing up in God. In verse 21, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? In other words, you really want to go crawl back into the womb? Forget it. Think about what you're, what you're asking for. You want to go back to the law. Do you really want to hear what the law says? Don't you remember? Because all it ever says to you is, you're not good enough. You're falling short. You're not going to make it. I mean, that's the schoolmaster, the disciplinarian, wrapping our knuckles. Do you really want to go back to school that way? Uh-uh. And then he goes back to this Abrahamic analogy he used in the first half of Galatians. But he's going to develop it at greater length here. 
He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. So we always think of Abraham and Isaac, but there was Abraham and Ishmael first, right? Two sons. The one by a bondmaid, and that was Hagar, so the son was Ishmael, and another by a free woman, and that's Sarah, and so Isaac. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Now, of course, obviously, in a literal sense, they were both born by the flesh, okay? A literal son of Abraham either way. But in terms of the covenant, you remember when we studied this in Genesis last year, and it was Sarah at first feeling like, I must be the weak link in the chain. I can't have children. And since the covenant depends on posterity, I must be getting in God's way and my husband's way. And so in her own incredible act of selflessness, she thought outside the box, understood some of the cultural possibilities of her day, and suggested plural marriage. Suggested that Abraham go in unto Hagar, her hand, Sarah's handmaid, and whatever son they had would count for something. It, he could count for the covenant. Well, what's amazing about that is God honored that, blessed Hagar through that, blessed Ishmael through that, brought on an, an entire nation of the Arabs, and that's where the Muslim world emerges from. But God hadn't forgotten Sarah and let her know, yes, that, yes Ishmael will receive blessings and promises, but not the Abrahamic covenant. In some ways, and I've said this before, it's the covenant of Sarah, maybe even more than the covenant of Abraham. Because if it was only Abraham that mattered, then Ishmael's good enough. But no, it's the matriarchs and not just the patriarchs that count. So this has to be a child of promise that comes through the wife of promise. This has to be Sarah's son. And so only Isaac will do. So there's both children of flesh, but the real child of promise, this child of spirit, is, is, is Isaac. Keep going. Verse 24, which things are an allegory? So I'm using this as my metaphor. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar as we would pronounce it. For this is Agar of Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But what about this other sign? Ooh, let's talk about that. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So forget the earthly Jerusalem. Let's talk about the heavenly Jerusalem. Forget the flesh son of Abraham. Let's talk about the promised son of Abraham. Forget bondage. Let's go with freedom. Forget Hagar. Let's go with Sarah. Okay, let's, let's cut to the chase. Forget the law. Let's talk about the covenant. Verse 27 and 28. For it is written, and now he's going to quote Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. I've always loved that verse in Isaiah 54 because it reminds me of my own wife who early on in our marriage as we struggled with infertility feared that she would be this woman that travailest not. 
that she would be the, the desolate with no children. And yet, just like the promise made here, oh, rejoice, you'll end up with more children than the person you were envying before. This is the gathering of Israel. Don't worry that it's been scattered. It, everyone's coming home. And in our own experience, to go from a wife who was lamenting, I'm never going to have children, to a wife, not too many years later, that was lamenting, we're running out of space in our home and we can't fit all of the children. And that was music to my ears. Because that was Isaiah 54, fulfilled in our own lives. Well, here it's being fulfilled in Paul's, and the way he's describing it, it's to take it back to Sarah. This idea of, as Isaac was, thus are the children of the promise. Don't, don't, don't go down the route where you feel like it has to be through Hagar. And it has to be through Ishmael, and it has to be through Sinai, and it has to be through the law. In some ways, and I, don't want to, I, don't, I hope this doesn't come across as a scold against Sarah at all. Sarah was thinking outside the box. Sarah was trying to make sure that God could keep her prom his promise. But in some ways, in some ways, was it a lack of faith on her part? And again, I don't want that to come across as negative. We all struggle with lack of faith at times. We all struggle sometimes with, God's made me the promise, but I doubt it can happen that way, so I'm going to give him some other options. I'm going to give him some, some escape routes uh, and say, oh, this is probably how you're going to fulfill that promise. And for Sarah, it was, no, no, no. Don't trust in the arm of flesh, even if it's Hagar's flesh or Ishmael's flesh. Trust in my promise to you. It's going to come through. You may feel barren someday, you won't have room for your posterity. And then to finish with this analogy, verse 29 through 31, but as then he that was born after the flesh, that's Ishmael, as he persecuted him that was born after the spirit, and that's Isaac. And remember in Genesis, there was some friction between the two, which one of us really is the child of promise. There was friction between Sarah and Hagar, which one is the, the blessed wife. Well, even so it is now, Paul is saying. We're still at conflict. There is still friction between Jewish factions and Gentile factions. How? Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Let's go back to that. And he pulls out an interesting verse from the Old Testament. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, again, that does sound harsh when you put people behind that and realize what Hagar went through and what Ishmael went through when they were cast out at Sarah's request. That was hard for even Abraham. And yet, as we discussed it last year, God did provide. He provided miraculously. And Hagar came to know God in powerful ways through the experience. So, Again, neither bond nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. We're all in Christ. And hold on to that. But just to use the analogy, we're no longer personifying it. We're no longer talking people here. But as far as principles, we've been made free. We've been adopted into the covenant. We don't have to keep beating ourselves up with the law of Moses. Okay? Cast out those concerns. Cast out that sense of bondage. You are free.
And then Paul shifts in chapter 5. Teaching similar principles, but with a little bit of different language. In verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Why do you think we cast the bondwoman out? Why do you think we broke that yoke so that Christ could give us his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light? Don't be entangled. If you're a fish that swam out of the net, don't swim back into it. If you're an ox that finally had the yoke removed, are you really going to go find a new one to get back into? No, Christ hath made us free. That's liberty. Stand in it. Be confirmed in it. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And that's pretty stark, too. If you are waffling on this, if you're wondering and thinking, I don't know, maybe I really should go back to the old Mosaic way. You Gentiles, especially, if you're thinking like, no, I really do have to pass through Judaism. Is your faith in Christ really that weak? Is your faith in grace so insufficient that you think you have all these legalistic requirements that you have to fulfill? Oh, just because these overzealous Judaizers are, are telling you to? Oh, beware that magic spell. Don't be bewitched, you foolish Galatians. No, that's admitting your doubt in Jesus. And Christ shall therefore profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. I mean, you think about that. You want to go back to the box checking? Because there are some boxes to check? Great. Circumcision is, a, is an easy, well, painful, but an easy one to check. You can check it off and say, I did that. See, I'm a, I'm a member of the house of Israel. I'm part of the Abrahamic covenant. No, 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 careful, careful. Yes, you got back a box to check, but it also brought back all the other boxes. All the ones that remain unchecked because you couldn't live them perfectly. You understand what I'm saying here? You're acting as if Christ hadn't come. And if he hadn't come, then all the unchecked boxes come back to haunt you. Those former sins return, like we studied in our first half. Christ has become of no effect unto you, Paul says. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. And that must have been spoken ironically or sarcastically too, since no one's ever been justified by the law. Well, Jesus accepted. Ye are fallen from grace, he concludes. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. That's what it all boils down to. In fact, there's the relationship between faith and patience. It's a great phrase. Through the Spirit, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And it's faith that assures us that it's worth the wait. Righteousness will come. I'll grow up in God. I'll become more like Him. He will transform me. I can't keep beating myself up over the law. I just have to wait on Jesus. Because if I go back to the law, I've fallen from grace. And I have no hope. I need to let God's grace work in me through love. And if I can trust in his love, then I should have sufficient faith to be patient.
In verse 7, Paul then says, "Ye did run well. I watched you blast out of the starting blocks. You were sprinting toward the goal. Then who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Who hath bewitched you? Who hindered you? Who brought you back into bondage and sent you back to grade school? Who's doing this to you? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. It's not Jesus saying this. He called you into the path of grace. He's not going to bait and switch and then hit you upside the head with the broken law that you can't keep. No, this persuasion is not of him. But be careful, because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And, and that is an interesting warning. You're starting to get that concern, that anxiety, that perfectionism is starting to well up again. And that leaven, it's going to spread. The, the Jewish leaven is getting back into your bread of life. And it's, it's becoming bread of death. It's spreading mold because leaven does that too. Now be careful what you allow to come in to persuade you. I'm certainly not trying to persuade you to presume upon His grace. God forbid. But they are trying to persuade you to think there's no grace at all. And that's false. So please pluck out these seeds of doubt before they grow into trees of disbelief. In verse 10, I have confidence in you. Well, through the Lord, that is. <laughs> okay, I've got confidence in Christ. But as long as you're connected to Him, then I have confidence in you too. You can do this with Him. I have confidence that ye will be none otherwise minded. So Paul still believes in them. You're going to get through this. It's all right. You're going to figure it out. You're going to make the right decision. I believe in you. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment. So you're going to make it. But man, these troublers, these bewitchers, I'm, I am worried about them. Whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision... Why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Now, that's confusing if we don't understand what is kind of behind the language. When Paul says, if I yet preach circumcision, the idea, well, at least most likely what's happening is some people may have been accusing Paul. Well, he's preached circumcision too. And that may or may not be true. Uh, I mean, Timothy was circumcised as he started his mission. Was, was Paul behind that? I mean, Paul comes to synagogues to start every missionary message when he comes into a new town. Is he, is he pro-Jewish himself? I mean, he was pretty zealous toward Judaism himself. I've never seen anybody quite like that guy. So are they, first of all, was Paul really doing that? Or were they accusing him of that? Or were they even kind of trumping up these false charges to try to get, hey, even Paul says you should be circumcised. And he's like, whoa, 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 don't put those words in my mouth. I said nothing of the kind. And the way he puts it here is, if I had, why, was, why would I be persecuted right now? I've got all these Jews and Jewish Christians that are, that are fighting me, persecuting me. And we saw a lot of that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Are they doing that because I'm preaching circumcision? No. Because if I was, they wouldn't have anything against me. I'd be one of them. But I'm not. So that's the first thing to realize. Um, the, I'm preaching the cross of Christ. Okay, That's offensive to them. They would rather that I, were, that I were preaching circumcision. I'm not. But then what he says at the end is brutal. This is some of the strongest language Paul will ever use in any of his letters. 
it was so mm, concerning to the King James translators that they hid it in a euphemism. And in the English, we, we, we don't even bat an eye when we read it. At the end there, when it says, oh, those people that have been pushing you towards circumcision, I wish they were cut off. And that sounds like excommunication. It sounds like separation from the society of the saints. Yep, just cut them off, and that Jewish faction within Christianity should be removed from the church. Okay, that, that's fine. But the Greek, who it's not watered down at all. Because the phrase cut off comes from a Greek word that means amputation or mutilation. And the idea there in the context of circumcision, think about what Paul is threatening. Not literally, he's not going to do anything here. But rhetorically, this is as strong a warning as he could muster. Let's compare circumcision to castration, shall we? And since they want to circumcise you, well, they ought to be castrated themselves. Wow. I mean, this is, this is a strongly worded letter. Remember, no praise at the beginning? And some call that foolish Galatians, and who's bewitched you, and I thought better of you, and I doubt you, and what's going on? These are people that needed some strong language, and Paul provided it in spades. Whew, okay. Now, okay, I'm calm. Breathe, breathe, Paul. Count to ten. Okay, we, we good? We love these people, right? And he's like, yes, I do. But that's what gets me so mm, up in arms. Like, they know better than this. I, they, they were so converted. They would do anything for me. They'd pluck out their eyes, but now they're the ones that are blind. Why won't they see? Verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. And so, yeah, the Jews might have a point here. Please do not presume upon Christ's grace, or you'd be admitting that you needed the law of Moses. So please don't go there. Don't prove me wrong in my hopes for you. But you've been called into liberty. And how should that liberty be made manifest? How about this? Instead of using it as an occasion for the flesh, how about by love serve one another? Wouldn't that be amazing? And you're serving because you want to, not because you're being commanded to. You're serving because it's written on your heart, not checked in a box. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which Paul will preach elsewhere as well. It all boils down to that. Jesus had said that. These are the two great commandments, and upon them hang all the law and the prophets. My law is love, love of God and love of neighbor. But if ye bite and devour one another, Paul says, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. I mean, how's that for serious disagreement over the law? You're biting each other. You're devouring each other. Okay, you're going to eat each other up if you're not careful. So I'm feeling a little calmer. Sorry for what I said. Uh, can we just be at peace, please? Can we seek what's best for one another? 
can we love our neighbor the way the Lord wants us to? Now, to get there, verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Which is a beautiful description. How do we overcome the flesh? Well, change gears. <laughs> Shift attention. Don't walk that way. Walk this way instead. It's not about resisting temptation. It's about replacing temptation with something far better. If I walk in the Spirit, then yeah, I don't have time. I don't have interest. I'm not being drawn toward the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the thing that you would. I mean, no man can serve two masters, right? But you will end up serving one of them. These two are so at odds that by choosing one, you have not chosen the other. You've rejected the other. So please choose the Spirit. Then there's no worry about the flesh. He says, but if ye are led by the Spirit, if that's what you've chosen, ye are not under the law. So think about this tug of war between Spirit and flesh. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All of that. Lean in the Spirit's direction. And the flesh won't have a thing to say to you. Follow the gospel. Let the law, leave it, be, leave it alone. Leave it behind you. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. In other words, they're obvious. Which are these? And here comes another one of those lists of sins that Paul is so famous for. You're used to most of them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, which means discord or quarreling, emulations, which means jealousy. This is coveting in the wrong way instead of coveting good gifts in the right way. Wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. I mean, I could go on, right? Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You just got to let those go. He is warning believers against presuming upon Christ's grace. He's warning them against specific sins. These are the things that the flesh will I'll throw back into your face. You've got to be changed by Christ, or the flesh will always be with you. And even a legalistic approach to obedience... No, nope, can't do that. I'm just going to clench my fists and try hard. Uh, that's not going to work. The flesh will always be drawn toward that. That's why you have to crucify the flesh, symbolically speaking. That's why you have to be buried, the old man. You have to bury the old man and be risen, raised again in newness of life. That's what baptism was for. As, he'll, as we've seen elsewhere, it's the circum if you want to do circumcision, fine, but make sure it's the heart that is circumcised. That's a more difficult operation. It's one only Jesus can perform. So beware all of those things. And if those are things that you need to avoid, what are the things we need to pursue? Right? If I'm avoiding one, I'm, it's because I'm getting the other. I'm walking in the Spirit. That's what keeps me from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So you've warned me, warned me about all these lusts of the flesh. How do I walk in the Spirit? What does that look like? And again, he has a list. Thankfully, this is a positive one. I love this list. 
Galatians 5, 22 to 23. I shared this all the time with people in the mission field. If they were wondering, how do I know if the Spirit's with me? Well, here's, here's the best list I know. But the fruit of the Spirit, and that's how you'll know the Spirit's there, because its fruits are present. How can you tell what kind of tree that is? Most of the time, I can't tell until the fruit forms. And now I know it's an apple tree, because I know what an apple looks like. I just don't know what an apple tree looks like. Oh, that's a peach tree. Why? Because I see it's peaches, okay? It's the, by their fruits ye shall know them. And so by the fruit of the Spirit, you'll know the Spirit is with you. And here's Paul's list. It's love. It's joy. It's peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, that's self-control. Against such there is no law, which is a powerful way to describe what we're looking for. He mentions law at the end, which is interesting, because he's been talking about law all the time, right? And so by, I'm not saying that the law was wrong every step of the way. No, the law was, was warning you against evil and hoping to move you in the direction of good. Doing good is not against the law. Doing good is fulfilling the law. But hopefully you're not fulfilling it just because the law is threatening you if you don't. You understand? No, we want to do this for more for purer motives. We simply want to partake of that fruit because it is sweet above all that is sweet and pure above all that is pure. This is the fruit of the tree of life. This is the fruit of the Spirit and nothing tastes better than this. Can you imagine love and joy and peace and goodness? Come unto Christ and partake of this fruit. And if you're feeling this, there's a reason for it. I want to say one other thing, though, before we, before we leave this verse behind. And this is something that just struck me oh, about a year ago. I'd been asked to speak to the chaplains of the church, whether that was military chaplains or hospital chaplains, uh, prison. I mean, so many places where a chaplain's unique skill set is needed. Chaplains are, are velvet and steel. They have the steel of being able to handle going into the hardest situations in life, but they have the velvet to be soft-hearted when they get there, to help people get through those difficult things. Chaplaincy is typically rooted deeply in religion. But the hard thing about being a chaplain in a secular age is they don't care much for the reasons you're doing things, right? It's, there's a, skept, a secular skepticism towards anything that is religiously motivated. And so as I was addressing the chaplains, I was worried about that. How do you do your job when, when the world doesn't value the reasons you do it? And that's when it hit me. Well, they might not value the reasons you do it, especially if they're religiously informed, but they'll be grateful for what you're doing, right? I mean, so much of what we do as motivated by the pure love of Christ, that charity that never faileth, well, a lot of it other people can do for lesser reasons. Uh, I mean, there's other people that are, that are providing services and it's not because of religion in the background. And nobody complains about that, not even the secularists. And so as I was wrestling with this, this verse of Scripture came to mind. 
because I hope that we never get to the, get to the point where religious motivations and religious worship and religious acts are outlawed. I'm grateful for the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and the free exercise of religion. But we are seeing an age that sometimes seems to be pushing back against religious freedoms. I know Elder, President Oaks has raised the alarm on that repeatedly. So as I was pondering that with the chaplains, this verse and its ending finally... I've always loved the, this passage, but the ending's always been a little weird. Against which there is no law. It was like, well, duh, who's going to outlaw love and joy and peace? But that's when it hit me. Can you imagine a day where the secular world is sufficiently strong to outlaw certain forms of religious worship or practice? Again, I hope we don't get there, but if, even if they outlawed religion, would they outlaw love and joy and peace? See, the irony is, even if they want to burn down the tree, nobody's complaining about the fruit. You, you get where I'm going with this? This is what struck me. There is a vertical and a horizontal component of our discipleship, right? We talked about this with the cross. And vertical is connecting to God, first great commandment, love Him. Second great commandment is the cross beam, the horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, of those two, which does the world seem to have a problem with? They don't want us to love God. They don't even believe in Him. But they're totally fine with us loving neighbor, right? So in some ways, keep doing that. Especially when it's motivated by your love of God. Because then you love them in the right way. But you don't have to force your love of God upon skeptics or secularists. They will forever be grateful for your love of your fellow man. Another way to put that is they might oppose the why, namely your religious motivations, but they'll never oppose the what, namely your service to other people, your Christ-like actions. They might not accept that they are grounded in Christ, but the Christ-like action, oh, they'll be forever grateful for. I remember as I was pondering this, this phrase came to my mind. A river's reach is not confined to its source. Think about that. The source of this river of living water is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His grace that produces in me love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance and everything else. It's Jesus in me. You might not like Jesus. That's okay. You'll love what Jesus produces in me. And so if you don't feel like tracing the river up to its source, fine. You're welcome to the water. One other thought that crossed my mind as I was wrestling with that. Another analogy. If you can get people to where they need to go, they won't care where you filled up with gas. You get it? You helped me. You got me to my destination. You blessed me with love and joy and peace. Where, where'd you get the desire to do that? Oh, this is where I get my gas. It's a Christian gas station. No, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. I don't want to hear about it. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. You're the one that asked. <laughs> 
who cares where I got the gas? To me, it matters infinitely. There's no gas like it on earth. That's the fuel of faith. And yet, if you just wanted to get to your destination, I was happy to provide the ride. You with me? Well, then this chapter ends. Verse 24 through 26. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. We've seen that repeatedly. So, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So yeah, if you're living in it, or so you say, how about walking in it too? Instead of just talking the talk, let's walk the walk. Let's really live this way in a visible, tangible way. Let's treat each other differently. Let's let our second great commandment obedience flow out of the first. Okay? Let's, let's be real Christians, shall we? And then, this, and then one more chapter. Chapter 6, since we're talking about living the gospel, let's really live it, shall we? Unlike most other letters that end with, say hi to so-and-so and share my love with so-and-so, and, -so, and I, I really wish I could be with so-and-so again. We saw that to Rome, we saw that to Corinth, not to Galatia. Again, there wasn't the commendation at the beginning, and there's not all the, the individualized love expressed at the end. Now, this, the whole group needs some, some shaping up. But let's get there. And so he ends this letter in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and I've been doing that to you, sorry, not sorry, if I called you out, if I recognize where you're falling short, if you do that, ye which are spiritual, please restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I mean, after all, you're human too. Remember to the Corinthians, oh, if you think you're standing, be, beware lest you fall. We're all human. We all struggle. Myself included, Paul would say. So if you see someone struggling, recognize the potential to struggle yourself and be meek as you're crying repentance. Remember, if it's charity, it rejoiceth not in iniquity. No, it rejoiceth in the truth, and it bears all things, even other people's mistakes. So if you see somebody doing something wrong, be, be Christ-like about it, okay? Be meek and restore them. And then verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, that is the law, right? It's the law of love. And that's the law. I mean, if you want to keep law, you legalists, how about this one? Love each other. <laughs> as God loves you. If you want to keep one, that's, you know, that's a box you can spend the rest of your life checking. And hopefully before long, it's no longer a box. It's, it's who you are. He says in verse 3, For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, <laughs> he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. What he's saying there is, go ahead and compare your work, but compare it to your own potential, not to anyone else's. You can rejoice in yourself alone. You don't have to rejoice because, aha, my work's better than yours. No, prove it, but prove it to yourself, okay? He says, for every man shall bear his own burden. And there's personal accountability. There's... I've got a responsibility, and I've got to do the very best I can. Uh, Paul, that's how Paul serves everywhere he goes. 
he senses that burden and he bears it himself. Not building on other people's foundations, not watering where he's been called to plant somewhere else. No, Paul's giving it all he's got. But I do love the humility that he suggests there. That if you think you're something, well, first of all, you're wrong because none of us are anything. Christ is everything. And so if, if we nothings think we're somethings, how's that for self-deception? I actually remember as a rookie teacher. And part of it was just so, being so excited to finally teach the gospel professionally. And, and I loved my students. And I wasn't that much older than they were. Just a couple years. And I related to them. And I was full of energy and zeal. And I, I, I love those days. Uh, I, I've slowed down a little bit. I, I still have a lot of zeal, but I'm not quite as what I was when I was 24. And, and I connected with those kids, and I loved them, and they knew it. And they ended up loving me as well. But I remember once, and probably happened more than once, any time that pride starts creeping in, because pride ruins everything, and it's the universal sin. So even pride in good things, and pride because I'm making a difference in teenagers' lives and they're falling in love with the gospel and they're excited about scripture study and man, I must be a pretty good teacher. Oh, whoa, 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 careful, careful. If you're doing it to be seen of man, then it's priestcraft. If you're setting yourself up as a light, if your motives are impure, you've got some cleaning up to do. And I remember, thankfully, very early on in my career, I must have been teaching New Testament and loving it, and the students were loving it too, and then I got to Galatians chapter 6, and I read verse 3, hey, Jared, if you think you're something, <laughs> oh, please remember, you're nothing, so don't deceive yourself. I was so jolted by that verse that I typed it up and printed it out and stuck it on my wall next to my door, on the inside of my office, so that the last thing I'd see as I walked out of the office to go into my classroom was a reminder, don't deceive yourself, Brother Halverson. Uh, your students might say nice things about you. Do not inhale, right? Compared to the Lord who's doing the real teaching in there, you are nothing, so please do not deceive yourself. That's a powerful phrase that might protect us from pride. Paul then says in verse 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto, or share with is another way to say it. Let them share with him that teacheth in all good things. And I love that kind of teacher-student relationship. They're rejoicing together. They're both being edified. I share with you, you share with me. We're in this thing together, after all. Be not deceived, he says. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life eternal. And that's just the law of the harvest that we've seen repeatedly. The question Paul seems to be asking is what kinds of seeds are you planting? Spiritual soil or flesh? What kind of tree are you trying to grow? What kind of fruit will it produce? 
What are you feeding your students? And what will they end up sharing with you in return? In verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand? <laughs> Which is an interesting ending in that verse. What a, what a large letter. And when I first read that, I was like, it's only six chapters. What are you talking about? Well, if it was one of his earlier ones, then yeah, maybe this felt long to him. And then he built up some stamina and ended up writing really long ones to the Corinthians and the Romans. Well, maybe. Then again, the Greek might not be referring to a large letter, as in the length of his epistle, but rather large letters, as in the size of the letter that's on the page. Some scholars have suggested that perhaps a scribe was writing everything up to this point, and then here, Paul takes the pen and is like, oh, I want to write this one with my own hand. And if he does have any kind of eye problems, <laughs> he might need to write really big so he sees it. It reminds me of John Hancock with the, the, the large signature on the Declaration of Independence, which according to legend at least, he did so that King George wouldn't have to pull out his spectacles to see who was talking smack to him. <laughs> okay? Well, maybe it's an eyesight problem. Then again, maybe it's hoping to catch the eyes of his audience. And you bewitched Galatians. If I write big enough, if I speak loud enough, if, I, if my rhetoric is strong enough, if my words are convincing enough, will you change and come unto Christ? Will you trust in His grace instead of thinking that you are still in bondage to the law? I mean, in the immediate context, what is he writing in big, bold letters? This is a picture like all caps across the, the bottom of this epistle. What does it all boil down to, brothers and sisters? It's love each other. It's serve each other. And not because some law is forcing you to, but because the love of God leaves you no other option. You are possessed of charity, the pure love of Christ. If that's the case, then you will not be weary in well-doing. <laughs> You'll serve until you've got nothing left to give. According to your opportunity, the way he puts it here. And sometimes that's what we lack. And I would serve more if I could. I just can't. I don't have the time or the strength or the ability. But I would give more if I could. And that, that is accounted unto you for righteousness. Just ask Abraham. So whatever opportunity exists, then please do good to all men, especially those in the household of faith. If we can't figure it out among our own, then we're in no place to be able to bless the rest of the world. We've got an inner vessel to clean. But here it is, bold letters, big capitals. Please do good. Please be good. It's what the world needs. So verse 12, as we approach the end of this, large epistle. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Yeah, I'm going to bring this up one last time. I mean, I'm, I'm parting. I, I just gave you some beautiful words, but I don't want you to lose sight of the immediate problem here. 
So if they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Is that the real reason they're doing it? It's really interesting what he's hinting at here. Perhaps the only reason they're pushing circumcision on you is because, unlike me, they don't want to suffer for the cross of Christ. They want to get along with the neighbors, and they don't want to ruffle feathers. And so instead of preaching the cross of Christ and the grace that flows therefrom, no, to get along with, with a Jewish audience, I'm going to go ahead and preach circumcision and, and require that you be circumcised. Well, easy for me to say. It gets me out of trouble with, with the enemies here. Is that why they're doing it? Because, as Paul says, neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Ooh, and how's that for hypocrisy? They are circumcised, but they don't keep the law. Well, wait a minute. I thought circumcision was the, the sign that I am accepting the law and keeping the law. Well, they're only keeping one part of it. They checked that box. In fact, their mom and dad checked it for them when they were eight days old. They're not keeping the law. They fulfilled one of its outward elements, but it's not changing their inward lives. So their way is not even working for them. It's certainly not going to work for you. So just forget about it. Leave that behind. But, verse 14, God forbid that I should glory. I'm not trying to boast over them. I'm not trying to claim that I'm, that I'm something when I'm nothing. But I am trying to point out how, just how nothing they are. Don't follow their path. They're, they're in it for themselves, not for your benefit. Me, on the other hand, I am in it for your benefit. I, I'm doing this for your sake. I'm doing it for God's sake. So I'm not trying to glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'll glory in. This is like Ammon glorying in the Lord. This is Paul glorying in Jesus as he did in 2 Corinthians. He's glorying in the cross, even though he's being persecuted for it. But he says he's glorying in the cross of Jesus by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, none of that matters, but a new creature. That's what does matter. I mean, Paul is so converted. He's unashamed. He's unafraid. He, he says it like he sees it. And go ahead, crucify me. You can't. You can't do anything worse to me than what I've already been willing to undergo. Because I've already been crucified. How's that? Now you can picture his opposers like, what are you talking about? You're still here. It's like, yeah. But I was crucified in Christ. I crucified the natural man. And I now live in Christ. And that's a life you can't take from me. So if you want to take, oh, my mere mortality, no big deal. I'm willing to suffer all things through Christ, who saves me from all things. I mean, honestly, if, if all you've got to go against me is the world, I mean, yeah, I guess that sounds like quite the opposition. But no, if it's the world, oh, I know what the world means. I know that it's nothing. I know that Christ overcame the world. So crucify me? Whatever. I already crucified you. I crucified the world, and it has nothing to offer. And so Paul ends, verse 16 through 18, As many as walk according to this rule, 
So just do it this way. Crucify the world. Forget the law. Cast out the bondwoman. Just overcome the spell you're under. If you'll walk according to this rule, then peace be on them. And mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now, yes, I read that right. We're used to hearing the God of Israel. But I love this is the only place Paul ever says it. The only place it's ever found in Scripture. The God of Israel is one thing. But he's set. He is, he's fixed. What about us? Are we the Israel of God? Are we who he wants us to be? That's, that's what we're trying to grow up into. Well, from henceforth, let no man trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And so the letter ends. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Remember to the Corinthians when he gave us his litany of suffering. Five times I suffered 40 stripes, save one. Stoned several times. Beaten, mocked. But every scar bears witness of my testimony of him who bore all scars for all of us. And so I don't see those as signs of affliction. I see them as badges of honor. Something that I share with Jesus. The courage of Paul really is amazing. To, to desire more than anything else to help people come unto Christ and stay with Christ. Because Galatians is such a powerful letter to anyone who seems to be drifting away. Oh, the world does have its way of bewitching us. Somehow still trying to accuse Christ of being insufficient in his grace. And so we got to trust in other things. We got to trust in the arm of flesh. We have to trust in our own perfect obedience. We don't. We can trust in the grace of Jesus. It is sufficient for all of us. And so by way of review, I was amazed in such a short letter how many amazing one-liners there were. So without any commentary, just let the Spirit bring to your remembrance the lessons behind these lines. Deliver us from this present evil world. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you. If I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. They perceived the grace that was given unto me. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? They which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham.
Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Thou art not more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? Be as I am, for I am as ye are. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Ye have been called unto liberty. All the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Against such there is no law. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Let us not be weary in well-doing. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. The world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I'm blown away by the epistle to the Galatians. I sometimes forget about its power. And then I reread it, and again I'm amazed at all that Paul has taught in these six short chapters. Whichever one of those final phrases, or maybe one that I, I, that I missed, whichever one the Spirit brought to your attention, whichever one he turned into bold letters and all capitals, I pray that we will live, that we will have the humility to accept the Lord's call to be better than we've been. Not in some kind of over-anxious zealousness, but rather in meek submission to the Savior Jesus Christ. It's going to be a long time in coming, <laughs> becoming like Him. No wonder Paul says that we must not be weary in well-doing. I'm just grateful for, for God's endurance his faith in us, his hope in our future. And I testify of it. I testify he can be trusted. I testify that the Spirit of God has the power to break any worldly spell. So to any out there who are bewitched by a wicked world, or any of you who are losing sleep over foolish Galatians, that are sliding backward when you just want them to surge forward. That day will come.
I'm grateful for the Lord's patience in the process as he strives to get us to trust in his saving grace to the point that we might know without any doubt that that grace is indeed sufficient. <laughs>